tonight's special draft night edition of the BS Podcast. The Rigger Podcast Network brought to you by The Zone. They're changing up the way you, w- you watch baseball. Change up a new live whip around show across the league presented by the MLB and The Zone. Jump in and out of the best plays as they happen. Get expert analysis. You can watch it every night of the week. Available on nearly every device. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store. Sign up by creating an account. Start watching across any of your devices. Just go to DAZN.com to sign up. We're also brought to you by JCPenney. Raise your game with MSX by Michael Strahan. Athletic-inspired functional pieces designed for guys who are always on the go. Available exclusively at JCPenney from working out, playing golf, or just relaxing. MSX by Michael Strahan has you covered. Includes MSX basics, pants, shorts, shirts, sweatshirts, and outerwear, big and tall, and boys' sizes too. MSX by Michael Strahan is available exclusively at JCPenney. Visit a store near you or go to jcp.com. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com, the world's greatest website. We have all the draft coverage you would ever want. Just go to TheRinger.com. You can read all of it. Listen to The Ringer NBA Show where we have a live reaction pod, I think, or a post, post-draft reaction pod. There's reactions. We're reacting to stuff. Coming up, House. My buddy Joe House, we're going to talk about the draft. It is 8.22 Pacific time, PM. We're going to talk about what we just witnessed tonight and what some, some interesting ramifications for the NBA season that's coming up. We're also going to premiere a new segment, Kyle. What is it? It's called the Refeastables. Oh, House talked to me about this. Yeah, I'm ready for this. This would be a House of Carbs segment, but it's gonna we're gonna premiere it tonight on the on the BS Pod. And then, if that's not enough, if that's not enough content for you. Michael McDonald, the legend. He's on, the king of yacht rock, the king of the Doobie Brothers, one of the iconic voices ever. Yeah, he's coming on. He's gonna be on later. It's happening. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Joe House is on the line. It's funny, we in the old days, we used to, I used to write a draft diary for my old website and then for ESPN.com's page two and then for Grantland. And then at some point there and then I would call House and we would talk about what we, what we just watched. Now we're just doing it on a podcast. House, I'm glad you're awake. How are you? I am awake. I'm fired up. It's NBA draft night, one of uh, America's great evenings. So House, we started the night off, you know, this was Zion night. It was the Zion coronation. He's one of the four most important guys that we've had at the top of this draft this century. Shockingly emotional. I don't know. I, Maria Taylor is easily the best sideline reporter they've ever had for this. Um, she Her interviews were great. I thought the guys were really comfortable with her and opened up. But, but Zion got genuinely emotional, couldn't talk. Then his mom came in and the tears were rolling down his cheeks. I almost started crying, House. It was the NBA draft. I've never felt that emotional before. What, what were your thoughts? How about this? I, I'm so glad we're starting with, with this point and, and, and that you gave that shout out to Maria Taylor. She, she deserves it. Every one of these families came up. The choreography to this was beautiful. Maybe this is the stage of life that we're in, Bill Simmons. Like, we are such suckers yeah. for... This, this, you know, 
the the life changing moment. We want to see the guys with their parents and coming up and all thinking about all the hard work and the realization as it hits them about how their lives are changing. And we got tears out of the Barretts. We got tears out of the Morants. We got tears out out of Zion. I mean, there, there were and I, there's another half dozen. I'm I'm forgetting. It was it was like a tear fest. It was like Roy Firestone all over again. It really was. It was like the end of Jerry Maguire. And I think part of it was she's just really good at this. And you know, the Zion thing. It's great to grab these guys at their most innocent. You know, they they. It really is 100% genuine. I'm sure 12 years from now, he'll have his own content company and he'll be making game shows. But right now, it was it was just this totally genuine moment. And uh, I don't know, I got caught up in it. I, I don't think I've ever liked a draft pick coming into the league as much as I like Zion. He checks like every box I think I've ever had for a player. He plays as hard as humanly possible. He's as exciting as you could ever want anybody to be coming into the league. He seems like an amazing teammate. I love the fact that him and RJ Barrett were as close as they were. Um, he just seems really humble. And even at the end, when he when he, she was like, "What do you want from? Uh, what do you want to say to New Orleans?" And he's like, "Let's dance." It was like the perfect answer. Zion, A plus, ten out of ten. I love Zion. Yeah, I, I'm not going to correct you um, in terms of your observation about him checking every box in a way that that. Uh, you know, putting him number one at your all-time draft list. I recall the level of excitement you had for LeBron entering the league. I recall the level of excitement oh, yeah. you had 100%. for Kevin Durant. Yeah, for Kevin Durant. Yes. But now you know what your checklist is. Yeah. Uh, you you know you're a grown ass man. So at this stage of life, you know what your checklist is, and and we can say with confidence that Zion checks all the boxes. Yeah, and you know, when KD came into the league, and obviously you and I were in the front row of that bandwagon, he seemed like a baby. You remember? He just seemed like a little 195-pound, just just a rookie that was going to come in. It's hard to remember that version of KD, honestly. Yeah, and then there was a whole thing about, you know, he couldn't bench press this amount, and, and he just seemed young. And it was like, he's going to be fine. He's going to be good right away. And three years from now, he'll be incredible. Zion's coming in and it really does feel like the LeBron thing and even maybe a notch ahead of it because he's already so filled out physically where it would actually surprise me if he wasn't good right away. I mean, I don't think he's going to be third team all NBA or anything like that, but I do think he's going to be a really impactful player on both ends. And especially with how hard he plays and how athletic he is, you know, I, I saw a list of these these guys that come into the league, what happened with their wins totals the first year, you know, like LeBron and Davis, guys like that. Duncan was really the last guy that came in and his team won. I, I expect this Pelicans team to at least be, I don't know, a 35-win team, right? What do you think? Ooh, I'm thinking a little bit higher. Yeah, they still why have, not? They still have $30 million hanging around out there. I feel like they might, you know, figure out a creative way to deploy that over the course of the season. I'm glad you made the point about, um, you know, seeing him on both ends. I really thought that I know that, that uh, Jackson Hayes was not supposed to be, you know, slotted in, in that seven to 10 range necessarily. Yeah. But uh, he is a perfect complement for what uh, Zion requires in terms of a guy that he knows will be back there protecting the rim, our genuine rim runner 
in Jackson Hayes. Yeah. So I, I mean, it, it really should have a liberating effect on Zion. And I mean, I just expect New Orleans to fly up and down the floor. Do you think you think they at least texted Zion and were like, hey man, if Cam Reddish is there at 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 eight, what do you think? No. What do you think? Should we take him? Not. And Zion's like, Absolutely no, man, not. we're good. Let's take a big guy. Zero <laughs> percent chance. Uh, just a quick aside, my favorite part of the draft tonight, other than um, my dad's FaceTime when I FaceTimed them after the Celtics traded back 17 times, was <laughs> between the eighth and ninth pick, I texted you, oh my God, the Wizards are going to take Cam Reddish. And you had, I'll just say this, you had a violent reaction. It was, it was, you were violently opposed to the Cam Reddish era. You've already lived through it with Jeff Green. You didn't want to run it back with Jeff Green 2.0. You were upset there for about 40 seconds. Well, I mean, my concern is that, like, at this stage of of the Wizards franchise uh, position, we can't have any guesses. It's got to be a, a stable, you know, no guesswork about the nature of the performer. We can't have anything, like, inconsistent. That can't be one of the words yeah. that applies to the draft pick. Like, we just need a good, stable steady character guy that can come in and make a contribution and work hard and make some buckets. And well, that's what we got. You certainly got a steady guy. They, he was described <laughs> as, he was described as extremely polite or what did they say? They said, he's such a polite guy. I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing for my, uh, my lottery pick, but you also, you had polite with Otto Porter. So now you get to run that back. Um, I want to talk about this incredible Davis trade. And you and I haven't talked about this on the podcast. I did it with Rosillo. I thought the Pelicans got the most amazing haul anybody has gotten for a superstar. But now they did this trade where they also, they took the fourth pick and got a bunch of stuff. So here's what they turned Anthony Davis into. They turned him into Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball. Josh Hart, who I'm not a huge fan of, but whatever. The number eight pick in 2019, which became Jackson Hayes. The number 17 pick, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, the guard from Virginia Tech. You like him? I do. I like his motor. He works hard. Yeah. That coach makes sure that all those guys work hard. So they got him. They took the 35th pick in uh, in 2019, which I don't, I don't think that pick's actually happened yet. They got the 2021 LA pick. If it's in the top eight, if it's not, it rolls over to 2022 unprotected. They got a swap in 2023. And then they got their first pick in either 2024 or 2025. And they dumped Solomon Hill's terrible $12 million contract. Unbelievable house. I, I just said 11 things that they got for Anthony Davis. So this is unfair. But when you look at what San Antonio got back for Kawhi and compare it to this haul. Yeah. It's a little bit stark. Yeah. It's a little bit. It leaves you a little empty. You might have to do the Kawhi laugh. You want to try it? When he did it during the parade, Kawhi, Kawhi's approval rating, only Clay Thompson is higher right now for any NBA player. Maybe Brooks Kepka for all athletes. But uh, when he did that at the parade in front of the Raptors, I love that. Anyway, this uh, this Pelicans trade, on top of the fact that the Lakers screwed up the cap space part of it, and allegedly, I yeah, <laughs> allegedly, 
<laughs> it's been reported. It's been re- reportedly, allegedly, rumor has it yeah. that they <laughs> there was an accounting error and they didn't realize that if they waited until July 30th, they actually would have more cap space. And um, and it was one of the all-time whoopsies because if Davis doesn't waive the trade kicker, which he might because as Roger Sherman wrote about in The Ringer today, now he's in Space Jam. There might be a way to make it back to him with the Space Jam oh, where he would. Oh, you think? You think? <laughs> I was on Heat Check with John Gonzalez on Monday. Yeah. And we talked about this trade kicker and I was like, I bet uh, LeBron James and Anthony Davis in Los Angeles will figure out a way for Anthony Davis to get back that four million bucks. Yeah, I'm sure they can figure it out. So it's either going to be 27 point something or like 23 and a half. But either way, it's not enough for a max guy. So it rules out a couple of guys. What's startling about that is, I mean, this is a, a basketball team that's worth probably five billion dollars that has a lot of money, and should have the resources to have at least one MIT nerd who's just all he does all day is in the corner office with no window, just crunching numbers. How do they not have that guy? How, how incompetent well, is I, the bus family? I, I, I think it's a, um, a bit of a moving target. And to that point, I think there's a possibility that this trade tonight uh, out of the four slot and on down might have the effect of, creating some of that space it might be a form of bailout for the lakers i don't think that chapter has been completed yet in terms of what room the the lakers are going to end up with and whether the timing is still july 6th versus july 30 and all of that but i will just confess right now all that shit is above my head yeah let's keep bailing out the lakers a team that's in los angeles that everybody wants to play for that is worth five billion dollars let's let's keep throwing them bones we just as a quick aside, can we get your take on the Davis trade? Because you, you're usually in the camp of if I'm getting an awesome player, I don't have to care what I give up. But yet this team gave up, as I laid out on Sunday, the biggest bounty anyone has ever played, ever paid for an NBA superstar in the history of the league. The Laker fans got all mad at me, which I knew was going to happen because God forbid anyone questions the Lakers. But just how excessive the the price of the trade was. And their whole point was, who cares? We got Anthony Davis. And it's like, well, if you operate a sports franchise like that, it's usually not a good idea to be like, who cares? We're just throwing extra draft picks. This is what, you know, the the Brooklyn-Boston trade was completely different, but this was how we got Jason Tatum. Because at the tail end of the trade, the Celtics were like, hey, can we throw in a pick swap in 2017? And was like, sure, we will do that. You can have your pick swap. And then all of a sudden we get Jason Tatum. <laughs> that's that's your Prokhorov? Yeah, that's my Prokhorov. It's drug Prokhorov. <laughs> that's pretty good. Hey, it was it drug Prokhorov. Like, sounded like Malkovich. It sounded like Rounders <laughs> yes. a little bit. It's Malkovich playing Prokhorov. Okay. But, uh, but so wh- where do you stand on this house? Do you blame the Lakers for just completely capitulating and paying 150 cents on the dollar? Or are you in the camp of who cares? They got Anthony Davis. I'm, I mean, this is the most predictable thing ever. It's not going to surprise you one little bit. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. The price, the price is irrelevant. They have Anthony effing Davis. Yeah. With, with LeBron, like, here's the thing. There's no price that's too high to validate the LeBron acquisition. This was about LeBron. Like, you can't have LeBron come to your team and then surround him with garbage. It will go down in history, this 2018-2019 this season, 
as one of the most disrespectful, disreputable uh, treatments of a super duper star. One of the all time three greatest players in the history of the NBA came into this garbage situation and he tweaked his knee and they couldn't play. He couldn't play 20 games and the season was over. Yeah, that was it. I mean, they didn't make the playoffs. That's a that's a terrible outcome for 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 a guy uh, of LeBron's stature. Now he was complicit in it. He played a big role in it. But the only way to validate, I think, his window right now is two more seasons. That's what I, I think. I, that's I, the I'm, best case scenario. Yeah, wait, we're aligned on that. Yeah. So if that's your window, then go get the very best player you can get for those two seasons, and there's no price that's too high. Who ca- like out of Ball, Ingram, I mean, obviously Hart or any of those picks, like who who name one All Star? When's the first All Star game for any of that uh, cash? Any of that 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 uh, great pile of treasure that New Orleans received? When's the first All Star game coming from that pile of treasure? It's a fair point. I acknowledge the point. I just disagree with it because well. I just, I think it's crazy. My whole thing is, I, I've said this all week. Every time anybody brings up to me, I'm just like, who are you bidding against? Like, it's, I it's understand that, if there's LeBron, a second team. LeBron's, but, LeBron's career. Yeah, but they- Two years. That's what you're bidding against. You're bidding against two more seasons. But that's it, it. Nothing else. All the rest of the teams in the league are irrelevant. All that matters is the next two years of LeBron James' career. I agree with you, but- New Orleans didn't have a second bidder. You're bidding against yourself. Like you wouldn't go buy a house and just bid twice as much for the house as you had to. It's you the wrong wanna... analogy. No, it's not. It's the wrong analogy. Why? Yes. Because the, the, this is the thing. Uh, 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 it was always the case that Clutch and Rich Paul and LeBron James and Anthony Davis had the upper hand here. As soon as Anthony Davis and and LeBron made it public, that Anthony Davis wanted to leave New Orleans, Anthony Davis was leaving New Orleans. And that was it. And they did an effective job of completely neutering the only other legitimate contender in this, which was Boston, by making it abundantly clear that Anthony Davis would never re-sign with Boston. It was credible enough for New Orleans to accept that. New Orleans couldn't play Anthony Davis any basketball games this season. That is a terrible outcome for not only the New Orleans franchise, but for the NBA league at, at large. Yeah, but I you would can't have a player of his stature not playing in games to protect the asset. That's bad. Bad business. I agree with so you. So they had to move him. I agree with you on that, but somehow it worked out and they ended up with Zion Williamson, the most important guy that's come in the draft in seven years. That's just dumb luck. I, did, that's I mean, literally dumb luck. dumb luck. There's two dumb luck it's outcomes. The dumbest luck. New that's Orleans. It. New Orleans gets the dumb luck getting Zion. The Lakers get the dumb luck getting up to number four because I honestly don't think they had enough otherwise. They, I don't think... I agree with you about that. If it had been the number 11 pick, then I can understand throwing in all that other stuff because you're like, yeah, you just take everything we have. This is it. Like, we don't have anything else. Um, but the number four pick, would- I, I think, allowed them to make the trade. I just... Here's the thing. Yeah, you have Davis. Yeah, you have LeBron. We still think LeBron is almost definitely one of the best like seven or eight guys in the league. 
We, not almost definitely. No. He definitely is. Yeah, but you know definitely. what? We said that about Kobe in 2011, and we said no, that no, about no, 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 no. we said that about Jordan Kevin Durant and the Wiz. is not playing basketball this year. Clay Thompson's not playing basketball. At some point, the minutes year. are catching up to LeBron, though. I did this whole thing. That's that's true. I did this You're with right. Hench. I don't know. I don't know if I read this to you, but the the minutes for LeBron, yeah. like they're really crazy. All time. They're really nuts now. He's over 56,000 minutes, and the only two guys ever in the history of the league has, have played 60,000 minutes, playoffs, regular season combined. And everybody is just penciling in LeBron like, this is Miami Heat LeBron. And at some point, it's not going to be. Now, whether they can get two more years out of them, which is really all they care about, great. But we're going to see some atrophy at some point. This becomes unrealistic. Well, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Other than... The public images of him smoking cigars and drinking red wine. Yeah. What do you think he's been doing the last two months? Like, he didn't have to play in the playoffs. Do you think that all of that, his hyperbaric chamber was on X Max, right? He's going in there every night. He's catching his oxygen. He's probably been to Germany 10 times already, <laughs> uh, which is what KD should have done. I mean, I think he's going to come back. He's this. I'm, I'm, I have to use these old ass references because uh, we both turned fifty this year. He's not the six million dollar man. Yeah. He's going to be, you know, the thirty million dollar man. He's going to be money. No, he's going to be the three hundred million dollar man. Three hundred million dollar man. You said it. Well, that's it. I am all for get the best guy in the trade. I just think they left themselves with really no other ability to improve this team beyond Rob Palenka, who is established now to just be incompetent. Can we call him incompetent? I think it's no. We, we can't yet. He got LeBron and Anthony he, Davis. He didn't know in, know what date to trade to make the trade official. It just cost himself Capra for no reason. Doesn't matter. He's incompetent. He's a, he gave away Zubac. What about last summer? He's a doofus. They had the worst summer doofus. on the planet last summer. He's a doofus. All right, we'll call doofus. him a doofus. Doofus. But do you trust Not incompetent. him? You can't have LeBron and Anthony Davis and call him incompetent. That's, that's fair. That's All right, let's settle on doofus for Rob Palenka. Yeah, he's a doofus. Um, they have $24 million left to get. Realistically, they need three more guys. I was looking at it because they have Kuzma. You need three more guys, so you at least have six for the first 50 games of the season. And then you think you'll get two buyout guys in February, right? They'll get a couple of, the, Absolutely. A couple of their clutch cronies will just be like, hey... We're going to buy out somebody. Do you want first uh, dibs? Like with Tyson Chandler last Can year. Isn't Cantavia still on that team? No, nah, I think they had to renounce him or they're going to. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, the clutch gravy trade was great for him. He made as like 29 million bucks. Crony, I was like, oh yeah, KCP, go do it. Go do your thing. I was son. thinking more of like the GMs and the executives on the other team. I'm sure Griffin will throw him a solid in February. Thanks for oh, the sure. seven first round picks. <laughs> we'll give you uh, Etwan Moore as a bio guy. Um, yeah, so so really, it's up to Polinka to find three more guys. But anyway, I still I haven't changed well, there are my guys opinion. out there. I, Did you look at? I haven't I haven't done the full. I I know that Roger just published his piece. I haven't done the Zap Bruder level analysis yet. Uh, the forensics of the um, Space Jam two casting sheet. Yeah, but like it, you know, <laughs> is Patrick Beverly on that list? Yeah, he no, he's not. Dame Lillard was though. Oh, is is Derek Derek Rose on that list? Dame Lillard was on the list. Oh, that's interesting. Dame Lillard during the draft tonight dropped a diss track of Mar on Marvin Bagley. He did. He dropped a two <laughs> he two minute song because Marvin Bagley apparently 
challenged he, him to a rap battle on first take. He did that. That was dumb. And Dame Lillard didn't like it. And he and he released this pretty harsh two minute diss track. And why did Marvin Bagley try and and, and call out Dame? Because he's twenty years old. What does he know? He's <laughs> he's like can't even drink legally yet. He yeah, thought it was a good point. idea. Dame uh, Dame jumped on it. And now it's going to be this whole diss track drama, which I'm sure Adam Silver's just got to be delighted by. Can you imagine if this happened with David Stern? He'd fly these guys to New York immediately and start whacking them with the newspaper. We don't do no, diss tracks be, in this league. It can be edgy, but still clever and funny, right? I mean, in the same way that, that CJ McCollum and KD, you know, KD went on his podcast and then McCollum called him out for something, you know. Oh, House, they, I have some could be freaking news for you. What is it? It's now 847. Um, the Wizards in the second round got Admiral Schofield. I like that guy. Oh, I like him too. Holy Yeah, cow. that's a nice pick. Somehow, you're, somehow your second rounder is better than your first rounder. Congratulations. <laughs> that's rude. That's rude. <laughs> I love when that you. happens. I won't accept that. I'm not sure we got the best player from Gonzaga. But I know that he's as good as Admiral Schofield. He got the second best player from Gonzaga with with the ninth pick. <laughs> got to be happy about that. I really love Brandon Clark. Um, hold on. We're going to take a, a quick break, and then we're going to do winners and losers from the draft. Let's take a break. Talk about stamps.com. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. You don't have time. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle all of it with ease. Use your computer, print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send once your mail is ready, hand it to your mail carrier, have a little conversation with them or just drop it in a mailbox. Stamps.com, five cents off every first class stamp, up to 40% off priority mail, not to mention a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in BS, stamps.com, enter BS. All right, let's go through uh, the winners and the losers of the 2019 NBA draft winner. First of all, Zion, no tie, business casual. What'd you think of that house? Yeah, I mean, he could get away with anything. He is, he's a, a miraculous physical specimen. He could have worn a, uh, you know, what are you supposed to call the undershirts that are sleeveless now? You can't call them by the name that I grew up with. Yeah. I think call them wife beaters. What do you call them now? Huh? A shirt. Yeah. A shirt. That's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> this just turned super awkward house. Meanwhile, bowl bowl just got, <laughs> you, bowl bowl I, just got I, picked I, by Miami pick 45, but he was still in the green room. That's the longest green oh. room. And a oh, poor bowl bowl. Jesus. I didn't know Bull Bull was available prior to that Wizards pick. I would have taken Bull Bull. Yeah, he could have hung out in the hospital with John Wall. The <laughs> well, no, Manute Bull and Bull Bull. There's a there's a Oh, that's right. You had you Washington. had a bowl already. Well, he yeah, went 44th. we had the first bowl. Now now I'm rooting for oh big big handshake from Mark Tatum. Poor Bull Bull. He deserves. Well, it. I hope I hope nothing wrong. Right. I love Bull Bull. Me too. 
Um, so Zion locked down business casual. He mastered it. Most emotional pick ever. He had New Orleans all fired up. And then he got this text from my dad after pick number 20 when they were running another Zion thing. My dad, angry about the Celtics, texts me, by the way, I've had enough of Zion tonight. Is this before or after the Celtics traded the most Celtic player in this draft, Ty Jerome? Uh, uh, we're not getting, we, we're, we'll be getting to the Celtics during the losers part of this section. <laughs> so that, that text came before Ty yeah. Jerome didn't, didn't got traded to Phoenix. Another winner, Maria Taylor, breakout performance. Uh, always, I always only- liked her, but man, she was awesome tonight. That was really, really like, yeah. re, right. Like Robin Roberts was like, Whoa, who is this lady? She's on my corner. They made fun of her shoes and then they showed her shoes and they were some kind of like athletic shoes because she had to be on her feet all night. And I'm down with all of that. That that's the only knock. I couldn't I can't figure out the dress combo with the shoes, but like well, it's they, not I for think me she, anyway. She had to stand for like eight hours. I support I, it. I know, I know. This no, is, I'm not knocking no, this is an the argument. idea of having comfortable shoes. They just didn't seem like they went with the dress. But what am I what who am I? What do I know? This is an argument I've had with my wife pretty much every time we've ever went somewhere nice where we had to stand up for a while. Like when we go to the ESPYs and she's wearing like these five inch high heels and then two hours in, she's like, oh my God, my feet hurt so much. It's like, yeah, because you're wearing fucking high heels and we're at this party. We have to stand for seven hours. What'd you think was going to happen? Oh my God, I have blisters. Oh, I can't believe you have blisters. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that these five inch high heels gave you blisters. So then like two years ago, she finally started to just go for comfort with the shoes. And guess what? A lot happier. Every time we go to anything, we have to stand up for a while. So anyway, I support Maria Taylor's decision. Um, Another winner, the New York Knicks. Oh. Cheered on draft night. They took the right guy. They took a guy who I think is going to be really good. And and I think it'll be fun to watch the Knicks next year. I like that guy. I think... I think he got a bad rap in Duke being uh, being on the Zion team. We've talked about it a bunch of times. I think he was in a really difficult position playing for a team that had the Messiah on it. And every time Zion didn't have the ball at the end of the games, everybody just got mad at RJ Barrett. Meanwhile, he's 19. He's reading online like, oh, RJ's got to pass the ball. What the fuck's wrong with that guy? And I thought he handled it pretty well. I love how he stayed close with Zion, didn't resent him at all. And his stats... For 40-minute college games, like you're putting up a 23-7-4 in college as a freshman, you know, I, I think he's going to just keep getting better. And I think he's going to work. People are picking apart his right hand and is his three-point shooting good enough yet. He seems like the kind of dude who every summer will add something to his game. I'm a huge fan. I, I'm really, congratulations to the Knicks fans. I think getting him at three is a, is a huge win. What do you think? I totally agree with this. I okay. think your assessment, I, I think the criticism that was leveled against him uh, for the end of game stuff really deserved to go to Coach K. Like, I was just That's wondering fair. when somebody was going to wake up Coach K and say, hey, buddy, it's 2019. You know what we're doing here? Yeah. Like, you know, they they kept running these, these one-on-four sets and, and, and solo things like, you know, the, the ball didn't move at all. But you made the point. He's a 19-year-old kid. He's running the play that that the coaches tell him to run, and it wasn't very effective. You know, the only way that Duke lost the season was by beating itself. But that kid wasn't, uh, you know, singularly responsible. He wasn't out there doing rogue shit. Um, I did think that he 
uh, played a little bit with blinders on sometimes. I wanted him to have his head up a bit more, but that, like that's the best criticism I can come up with. His inside and outside game, he he's right there. He's the he was the uh, second best player that I saw this year. Now I love John Morant's uh, athleticism; it's just in- incredibly uh, explosive. But in terms of of a developed basketball player with a high ceiling, I'm right there with you on, on RJ and. I love how he has been thoughtful about how he wants to hold himself out to New York. He's embracing New York, and New York, New York is embracing him back. It's going to be fun, I think. Yeah, this is uh, – so they got Porzingis a couple years ago, and then they get this kid. That's pretty nice. It's, it, you know, the Porzingis thing obviously didn't work out because they traded him. But I got frustrated with well, RJ early in the season because I'm with you. I thought he played like he had blinders on. But the thing is – I'm not sure he's a typical point guard. I, I think he was put in position at Duke where it seemed like he was the point guard, but he's really an off-the-ball guard who should be scorer first and kind of playmaker, creator, but really mostly creating plays for himself. I just think that's his destiny. He's never going to be a guy. So who's... that would be great. They just need a point guard then. <laughs> they need a point guard in New York. Well, they can have Kyrie Irving. Just tell me. Say uh, the word. Be... I'll help him pack. Could be D'Angelo. Another another winner for uh, for the draft tonight. John Morant and his dad. Emotional father son oh. moment. And then they show Again. they cut to the clip of John Morant. His dad's working him in the backyard. He's like jumping on and off a tire. And uh, awesome. It made me think of when my son is the WWE heavyweight champion in the world, <laughs> and and me and him have that moment. And then they show the clips of me throwing him alley oops on the trampoline, which gave him the superhuman leaping ability that led to like his deadly elbow that he became famous. It'll be the same thing. We're like the John oh, and, and, and his dad of wrestling. And all of those, those clips of, of you and him in the hotel room. Yeah. Him with the hotel pillows, what he's done to those pillows. It's really a, a crime. Yeah. I'm glad he hasn't been arrested. I'm going to say that I'm going to say when they interview me, I'm going to be like John Moran's dad. I'm going to be like, look, I gave my son everything I, I knew and everything I had in me. And then he did the rest. He really wanted this. He worked really hard. And now he's the WWE heavyweight champion. So the Morants, congrats be- to them. Another another winner for me, the comedy of the State Farm commercials. They had a they ran a State Farm commercial where James Harden and Chris Paul started arguing with each other. And I, I was so delighted. I rewound it, watched it a second time. How did they not cut that? I hope cut. No, they need to run those <laughs> all summer long. How about this? Has nobody made the observation? James Harden burned down Chris Paul's kitchen. Do you think that Chris Paul is happy? How can he be happy? James burned down his kitchen. Oh, that's right. And and he's probably going to take know. the State Farm ad campaign from him, right? So if you're State Farm and James is like, I'm only in if Chris Paul's out. Now what do you do if you're State Farm? <laughs> you try to trade uh, Chris I mean, Paul to, to um, an inferior insurance agency. For get some draft, it picks only back. works. I I I think they. I I don't know what to think. State Farm's been very innovative, innovative, innovative. It's midnight. Goodness gracious, with its campaigns. I mean, but that, but they got to bring them all back. They were innovative with the campaign. They never expected that the two teammates they would have would turn on each other in real life. What a wrinkle! Now they have to film more commercials where they're just not talking to each other. There's what, just what? third parties communicating with them. Uh, another winner. I, for some reason, really, really like the Kobe White to the Bulls. I don't know. I just liked it. 
It, it was like the right time in the what draft. What do you mean you don't know? You just liked it. He's awesome. I know, He's but the like, best point guard in the in the draft. A couple guys got taken ahead of him, which I like. Little chip on his shoulder yeah. now. I like the team for him. They're they're going to be bad. Me too. He can make his mistakes. They're going to they're going to fly. He plays really hard. Levine, at least offensively, was at least playing hard last year. I like Wendell Carter. Weird moment when Wendell Carter came over, and. uh and and congratulated him, but I felt like Kobe Kobe White did didn't totally sell it. Know what was going on there? They got they got to work on that. But um, <laughs> but for the Bulls, I like when the Bulls have an exciting guy. I mean, twist my well, arm. I, I had mean, Michael it, Jordan for twelve years of our life. I fourteen yeah. years. I like when there's an exciting guy in the Bulls. Shoot me. I don't know what Chris Dunn's gonna do, but I like the pick. Chris Dunn is um is gonna learn how to be a backup point guard. I think. So or the starter for the Wizards. Yeah. So another winner who's also going to be a maybe a loser here, but the Hawks turned 8, 10 and 17. They traded up and they ended up getting DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish and had to take on Solomon Hill's expiring. But now they have Hunter and Reddish together. Put them with Trey Young. Put them with Herder, Ryan Russell's favorite player. Put them with John Collins. It's kind of the start of something, House. I don't know. It's at least a fun league pass team, right? It was worth a gamble for them. That was, you know, they got a ton of value for where they were situated and 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 how they sort of transformed that position into guys that, like, if you track the draft board, the mock draft going back to the fall all the way through to like April of this year, those two guys, Reddish and Hunter, you know, have been inside the top 15 pretty religiously, pretty consistently. And, you know, for a, for a little while there, Reddish was inside the top five, top six for a good long stretch until, you know, he had his injury problems and so forth. So for that, for where that franchise is and, and, you know, what how, the, the ambition and then just trying to build some excitement there. I mean, Trey Young, you have to admit, really exceeded expectations this past year. Uh, a lot of folks were skeptical. Uh, no, the second half that he had was pretty impressive. He's a great offensive, or he he has the potential to be a great offensive player. I thought defensively, you might as well have just put like one of those yellow cones that people use on driving tests and just had that move around on defense. Like he is an atrocious defensive player, but offensively really good. Well, yeah. But he's at, he's at he's going to be a liability his whole career defensively. So he, we for for how how young he is and for where they are, I I think they got value. Yeah, I'd rather it wasn't Luka Doncic. I'd rather have Luka Doncic. Sorry, I know, I get it. But yeah, at least at least Trey Young's Good. not a bust. DeAndre, you like DeAndre Hunter and Reddish together? Maybe you know who knows. It's like they're they're. They have a kind of identity. They can, they can again, we, we're seeing about all these teams build around these young, athletic, wing guys that can run the floor. And shoot. Right? It's like, and shoot. And shoot. It's, just, it's a speed kind of, kind of uh, game. And I think um, it, it, was, it was worth it to find out. I mean, I'm not sure that, that DeAndre Hunter's ceiling is much better than like Otto Porter's. You know, he's a, three and D guy or Mikhail Bridges. He's, he's one of those guys. I don't think he's ever an all NBA guy, but it seems like he has the ability to be an above average 
swingman for a while. Would be would be my guess. Right. I liked how I liked how he played in big games in college, but as we found out over the years, sometimes that's not the most accurate thing. Uh, another winner, Miami took Tyler Harrow, a pick before the Celtics, which really hurt because I was really <laughs> focused and fired up for him. And then he came out wearing a crazy suit. And then there's I loved it. There was uh, weird social media photos of him, and he just seems like the kind of guy who would hang out with nephew Kyle. Word. <laughs> word. I think Nephi Kyle says word. Word, of course. That's what. Yeah, word. So here's the great thing: they got rid of Tyler Johnson and replaced him with Tyler Johnson 2.0. It's Tyler Harrow. <laughs> I also wonder. I got a strong, strong, strong sensation. This feeling came over me as he was uh, doing his whole interview, which I couldn't have enjoyed more. Yeah. I really got a strong whiff of white chocolate. It oh, really felt like he did Jason seem a little Williams white chocolate. Yeah, he really did, didn't he? Didn't didn't he give that vibe? It was like a strong little bit of that southern lilt, a little bit of that attitude, that swag. I just I just got it. I don't know. Like he like he walks by and you're like, "What's that smell? Is that pot?" <laughs> or is it white chocolate? <laughs> uh, is there a difference? Losers. <laughs> the Suns. So Sacramento abandoned their rightful, hard-earned territory as the league's most poorly run franchise about a year ago. It was a bummer. The 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 dumbest team in the league. If you just asked anybody, you'd be like, who's the dumbest team in the league? And people would be like, oh, it's Sacramento. And then over the last couple of years, I think they've shed that. And then it's been really a fist fight to see who could grab the belt from them. And Phoenix was in there. You had the Lakers, even though they ended up with LeBron last year and Davis's share, but just doing like really weird things where you have people around the league going, what the fuck is that team doing? The Suns not only cemented their, uh, their championship <laughs> belt over the last 12 hours, but, um, I honestly don't know what the hell they're doing. I, I don't know what the hell they're doing. And it started, the day started out, TJ Warren, who I think is actually good. He's, he's, I think he makes like 11, 12 million a year. That dude can score. And if you put him on a playoff team, he will get buckets in playoff games. I'm just telling you now. They trade him to Indiana just to dump his contract with the 32nd pick. It's like, wow, that's weird. It's, it's, it's almost like Robert Sarver has done this before where he's just sold off his players. Like he's selling like a TV or a car. So he, they do that. Then they have the sixth pick and they trade backwards for the 11th pick in Dario Saric, who I think is going to be a free agent in like a year. So I don't know what they're doing there. And then with the 11th pick, they take a guy, Cam Johnson, who the ringer had 33rd on their draft board. This was the 11th <laughs> pick. And then it goes up and it's like, yeah, the guy, he, he transferred colleges, but he also has all these issues with his hips. I'm like, oh. Both hips. So that doesn't sound good. So then they end up, they finally do something relatively smart at the end of the night. They traded next year's Milwaukee pick for Baines and, uh, and the 24th pick, and they took Ty Jerome, who we both like. So somehow, yeah. the best move they ended up doing the whole night was the 24th pick. The 24th pick's going to be better than the 11th pick. I don't know what that team's doing. That team last year 
bought out Tyson Chandler for no reason when they could have used his expiring contract at the trade deadline. They just bought him out. He be they turned an asset and made it completely useless. It's like they don't understand how the league works. And I it, it always goes back to me to, you know, big shot Bob Sarver, who is just just an atrocious owner. I, I think he's like James Dolan with worse PR. If he, if he had the right PR, we would be rightfully talking about him as the league's worst owner. But, you know, he's in Phoenix, doesn't have like five generations of Knicks fans touting his terrible praises and doing the whole thing. He's just kind of buried in Arizona. Only the Suns fans are really affected. Nobody else really cares. But he is pound for pound the worst owner house. Yeah, I mean, the, the lasting visual of this era of the sons is that a wonderful elderly woman in the public hearing saying that Robert Sarver's uh, so tight. He squeaks when he walks. <laughs> right. That's, that's, my, that's right. That's my favorite. That's my favorite uh, meme for the, for this uh, Sarver era. I don't. So the reputation for Cam Johnson is that he's the best shooter in this draft, Yeah, which is great. Um, they already have a pretty damn good shooter on the team who is right now a year younger than Cam Johnson. Devin Booker. He's been in, <laughs> Devin Booker's been in the league three years already. Yeah, he's, he's, had his new con, he's had a new contract already. Cam Johnson's what, older than what him. The, what the, what the, what is going on? Why, why do they do it? It starts out with Sarver. You got to go way back. The 04, 05, 06, 07, 08 Suns. It's like kind of impossible that they didn't win a title. One of the reasons they didn't win a title was Joe Johnson wanted a new contract after the 05 season. And the Suns lowballed him. And he got pissed. And he signed a restricted offer with Atlanta. And told Phoenix, basically, please don't match this. They end up working out a deal with Phoenix for Diaw and a couple first rounders. But they they could have had Sean Marion, Joe Johnson, Steve Nash, and Amari Stoudemire as their nucleus for the entire mid-2000s. And just with that one move, screwed that up. The trade actually turned out to be, wasn't like a complete disaster because Dia was pretty good for them. But they, you know, they yeah. sold the sold off the pick that was Luau Dang. They just sold that pick to the to the Bulls, just gave it away. They sold off the Rajan Rondo pick to the Celtics. Like, it's impossible that the Suns didn't win a title one of those years. They, just from an asset standpoint, they had the most assets. And he screwed it up. So uh, from that alone, you you should have been trying to drive him out of town. But then this whole decade, he's been the worst owner in the league. I pray that a Suns blog aggregator aggregates this. Just, just you, you've my permission to aggregate my copy. Robert Sarver is a terrible owner and he should sell the team. And it's not your fault, Suns fans. Oh. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Sell the team. Sell, sell the, the team. team. You need to do a new. You need ice. Put ice on. At a least new James sell the Dolan, team. like at least Cablevision is successful, right? I mean, yeah, James so Dolan's more confident than Robert Sarver. Jesus, just sell the team. Sell the team to somebody who knows what they're doing. Don't do this to the Suns and, fans and anymore. Just, sell the team. Nobody likes you. That's kind of that. They're worth two and a half billion yeah, bucks, right? Sell them. What's the what's fun for him about owning the Suns? He's a disaster. It's a, everywhere he goes, they're point. like, oh, that's the guy that ruined the Suns. What's fun about that? <laughs> um, let's uh let's take a quick break, and then we'll go for the rest of the losers. Hey, let's take a break to talk about Helix, especially because house is about to fall asleep. They create personalized mattresses to fit your unique needs. You're unique. You should have a mattress that fits you. 
other mattress companies will say they work for everybody. That's not possible. They'll say they're soft and firm at the same time. Not possible. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, like a push or firm bed, whatever you like. With Helix, there's no more confusion, no more compromising. And an average mattress, it was even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Go to helixsleep.com slash BS. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. But you will now. Fourth of July sale. Oh, wow, that's coming up. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash BS. That is helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep. Dot com slash BS for up to $200 off during their July 4th sale. Okay. A um, couple more losers from the draft tonight. Cleveland, they took Garland fifth, who seems to be a, a point guard that doesn't have a ton of size. Not that that's, you know, like Kyrie's not a huge guy and there's guys, there's point guard. Dame Lillard's not a big guy. And they're putting him with Sexton and they're floating out they think this could be a Dame-CJ thing. First of all, bite your tongue, Cleveland. How dare you say bring Dame and CJ I, I, into this? You're right. That's like a once in yeah. a decade, you know, and that took years to hone whatever. But I, I thought that was a strange pick. What'd you think of that pick? I wasn't a huge fan. Not a fan. Like, what are you telling Colin Sexton? You're telling him, look over your shoulder, Colin Sexton. We just took another point guard. When has this ever worked? I I mean, in recent memory, the last dummy who tried it was was your boy uh Khan in Minnesota. Yeah. Well maybe they didn't work out. Maybe they trade Colin Sexton. I find it hard to believe this is a backcourt that's gonna play together. It reminds me of when they took Kyrie and then they took Deanne Waiters. And everybody's like, Hey, this is weird. These are two guards that love the ball. And Cleveland's like, No, it'll be fine. Minnesota <laughs> It's never fine. Minnesota traded up to six. They traded 11 and Dario Sarge for six. And I thought they were up there. I thought they were doing it for a point guard. And then they just took Jared Culver, who's not a point guard. I thought that was weird. What's wrong with Sarge? Good shooter. Good shooter. What's wrong yeah, with I, I Sarge? Guess they didn't, the I guess they didn't want to pay him. <coughs> we thought that Sarge, I thought this, I thought he was a, like a decent contributor on a, on a playoff team. Like not uh, not a starter, not a sixth man. Yeah, but in the rotation, in the rotation on a playoff. Yeah, he could have. You and I, we love to judge all the players we watch, and we're trying to project by could they have played in the finals that we just watched. Sarge could have played in that finals. Sure, sure, yeah. He could have played on either team you know, and gotten minutes. I feel like uh, fourteen minutes, something like that. Another loser. I don't want to dwell on the Celtics too much, but. Um, <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> yes, you do. I don't know. I really don't. I don't know what the hell is going on with this team. They start out with 14, 20, and 22. They lose out. They, Al Horford, he's gone. They Kyrie's gone, but good. He can leave. Please, please, uh, let's, let's make sure he gets on the plane. But I didn't know what they were going to do with all these picks. 14th pick, there's some good guys left, some Celtics types of picks. And they took Romeo Langford from Indiana. 
I, I just didn't see that one at all. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. Please. I hope I'm wrong. I know he had a, he had an injured thumb and a shooting hand last year that probably affected his shooting, but I just feel like we, he's the kind of guy that they've taken before. Then they get to 20 and, uh, Thibault was on the board still, who was one of my favorite guys in the draft from Washington. He was like a, just a absolute defensive menace and just the kind of guy who always ends up on a playoff team. And they actually pick him, but they pick him to trade him to Philly. So they trade down for 24 and 33. They took Grant Williams at 22, who you really like. Then, then they trade 24 and Baines to Phoenix for Milwaukee's 30th pick. And uh, and with the 33rd pick, they took Carson Edwards to Purdue kid. I actually got to admit, I got excited for that one. But it, it, it took me a while to realize what was happening, House. They're clearing cap space. These were all like moves that you do when you think you have a chance to sign a major free agent. Uh, lo and behold, they're at almost 26 million in cap space now. And if they get rid of Rogier, that moves up to like 34, which is right around the number that a max guy would cost. What are they up to, House? Mm. What's going on here? Mm. What's happening? It's I'm it's my question to you. Who do you think they can get? Could it be D'Angelo Russell? One thing to have the space. Yeah. So that that wouldn't be that bad. I I was so impressed by him this past season. You have to have it, he what he showed us in the playoffs was you can't put too much of the load on him. He needs some complimentary. Well, pieces. he's young though. He's only and twenty-two. Don't we'll th- we think he'll get right. better though, right? Oh, I I mean, we both like him. This will go down as I I think this among the uh, last half decade of Laker blunders, getting rid of him because he snitched on uh, Nick Young, yeah, cheating on his his girlfriend, yeah. That that it's a it's a criminal negligence. It was bad that they couldn't figure out a way. To keep this twenty-year-old, you know, top three pick, yeah, that's bad on the team. That's bad. They sacrificed him because he told on Nick Young. Well, would you that's, rather? That's. I know my answer just because I lived through it for two years. Although the first year was happy. Um, would you rather have D'Angelo Russell turning twenty-three next year or Kyrie Irving turning twenty-seven next year with multiple knee surgeries already? I mean, it, this is the thing, like. I know that it, we're putting an in ink that Kyrie is going to Brooklyn and that Brooklyn's also going to take a run at, at getting KD. Yeah. But like it feels at this stage, there are only a couple of teams that have the institutional like fortitude to be able to handle Kyrie's bullshit. It's like, you know, a, a team like Brooklyn that's on the come up that needs a guy that can help put them over the edge. But we've all learned don't let him talk to any of the young guys, right. Just keep them away from the young guys. Yeah. Um and and pair him with another alpha. You need another alpha. He can't be the only alpha. Or send him back to where he belongs, which is second banana land with LeBron and and go exactly. That's right. I think. I mean that that to me makes the most sense. Him back with LeBron and playing with Anthony Davis. That then then I can see the four to one odds the Lakers are at right now to win the twenty twenty title. And if that's what's up their sleeve then, you know, more power to you, uh, Lakers. That's what makes sense for Kyrie Irving. Can I make a prediction for what the Celtics are up to? Let's hear it. Based on no inside info. 
<laughs> yeah, I love that you have to always put. Well, because sometimes when I have Celtic stuff, people think I got it from somebody there, and, and they yeah. they never leak anything. I think it's going to be Malcolm Brogdon. Hmm. Maybe not. But that's not a max dick. That's not a max. No, not a max. But I think they can structure a deal where it would make it impossible for Milwaukee to bring him back. And if you're trying to build a team to win in the East, that team has to be better than Milwaukee. So it has the double edge, the double edged. Uh, <laughs> the, Don't say it. <laughs> It's midnight here. Yeah. I would say dildo, but <laughs> but that's it's it's after it's late hours here. I let you say adult it. adult warning. Uh, so it has the effect, the double edge effect of not only do you improve your team, but you really hurt Milwaukee because I felt like he was extremely important to them. And uh, I don't know, he's really wow. good. Like look up his stats. If, he was a fifty forty ninety guy last year. Now he's had some injury. If that's stuff, the goal. But well, I'll say this though. If that's the goal and intention, what you do with that money is try and sign Chris Middleton to a sheet and make the Bucks match it. No, he, he's not a sheet that, though. He's he's not restricted. He's unrestricted. Brogdon is actually restricted. So oh, I got it. I got it flipped. Which one was restricted? Yeah, okay. yeah. So let me ask you this: House, if they get to thirty-five, and they spend, let's go twenty-one million a year on Brogdon. Let's go eighty-five for four years for Brogdon. And then they spend the other thirteen million a year on Kavan Looney. You get Brogdon and Looney with the cap space. Are you back in on the Celtics team? Hmm. I didn't mention Romeo Langford yet. He's in there too. He's well, he's on the G League team, but he's he's <laughs> our G League team is gonna be another, so much better next year. Another combo guard that can't shoot. It's a, he's a combo guard for our G League I, team. At pick 14. I sold that from Mike Prater. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Mike Prater for that one. Well, they this Kings pick um, that they had that they thought was going to be this choice, unbelievable high lottery pick ended up turning into Romeo Langford. So I'm going to uh, hit my head in, on the desk right now. Hold on. <laughs> 27% shooter from the college three. Wow. He, he, uh, it's, it, when, you have, when I have to defend him, the 14th pick, like, well, his thumb was injured. Like, where, this is a bad place. A place I don't want to be. <laughs> So, are you back in on the I'm Celtics not, team? Brogdon, Looney, Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. Um, I forget who else. Well, is I it. think we. Well, I don't think they're a sixty-seven win team. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Maybe if you include That's playoff funny. wins, and ex- if you could, if you um, include preseason and playoffs, could we get to sixty-seven wins? Let's let's play this game though. If they get Brogdon and Looney, what is their over under number? All right, here's the team: Brogdon, Smart, Hayward, Tatum, Jalen Brown, Looney, um, and your boy Grant Williams. Now, he is my boy. And, I love him. And my and my guy Yabaselli, who I still haven't quit on. I can't quit you, Yabaselli. I can't quit you. Well, why don't you? I just can't quit Yabaselli. But uh, so that's one way to go. The other thing that's interesting is they have $25 million in cap space and Steven Adams makes $25 million and OKC is completely screwed with the luxury tax yet again. So it could be a situation where OKC is like, hey, we'll give you Steven Adams. Just give us back uh, Robert Williams and we'll call it a day. No? Do you, 
Do you really want Steven Adams at this point? No, not if I'm not a contender. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. I think the over-under for that... You're better off with Brogdon and Looney. That The over-under for that Celtics team I just laid out is probably like 46 wins. So we took a hit, House. Oh. oh, I think it's around 50. You don't think it's around 50? It, dep- it depends what I'm getting from Hayward. It would be a team that moved the yeah. ball a lot better. I'll tell you that much. If you had Brogdon and you had Hayward and we taught Jason Tatum what it was like to throw a pass, um, you know, maybe put him in a passing clinic. Anyway, I don't understand what happened with the 14th pick because there were a lot of guys in this draft. I actually liked the 10 to 25 range more than the uh, other range. But my point is the Celtics are up to something. I'm still putting them in the losers category because the quote unquote up to something uh, can backfire so many times. And I I just want to also mention my dad is really upset after the draft and and just at one point texted me and just said, I'm going to bed. That was it. He was done with the night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have two more losers. Chauncey Billups, rough night. Just, I I can't totally blame him because he probably shouldn't have been on the draft, but it's, it's hard to do those comps. It really is. But you can't like compare the 13th guy in the draft to fucking Kawhi Leonard. Like it's absurd. I, his comps were like, you oh. almost needed a, a second screen experience where you just had people kind of looking confused as he did comps. Like, well, this guy reminds me of Scotty Pippen. It's like, no, well, he's not a lottery this? pick. What are you talking about? It's not too late. That sounds like a r- rigor bit. Why don't you just splice together all of his comps? Kawhi Leonard? And, and, and run it. Yeah. No. Chauncey's comps. I mean, call it, it already has a name. It's called Chauncey's comps. Who's going to build that, build the YouTube of it and show these guys? We did. And the players that he's When I did this. Unbelievable. When I did the draft, we came up with the comps thing and we were super excited about it and we put real thought into it and really tried to make the comps actually realistic. And now the six years later, the wheels have just come off and he compared R.J. Barrett to Jalen Rose in Chicago. Jalen Rose in <laughs> Chicago, compared- the team won like 30 games, and then they dumped his contract to the Knicks. Like, wh- how is that a comparison? Jay- this is the third pick in the draft. Jalen Rose in Chicago? What are you talking about? That's not the, that's not the violation, though. Which one was? He, comp- he, comp- he compared Roy Hachimara. I'm going to get his name Rui wrong. Roy Hachimara. Uh, I, need, I need six months. Rui. I'm going to get his Rui name Hachimara. wrong. Every day, I, oh, I I was close. Rui Rui Hachimara. I'm gonna get who it did wrong. he compare him to? Um, to he said, "Don't get it twisted." Kawhi, a young Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. What, hey, what was that? Let me ask you this: What the fuck does that mean? I think he meant what's a young Kawhi Leonard. I think he meant a young Kawhi Leonard, like when Kawhi Leonard was 15 and he was on he was a 10th grader in high school. <laughs> I think that's the Kawhi Leonard he was, when he was targeting. A freshman at San Diego State. Yeah. It was it was when he was being recruited by San Diego State. That's where Rui Hachimura yeah, don't, is. Don't get it twisted. A young Kawhi Leonard. That's one of those things, because I've done the draft. You have these pre-draft meetings, and you have to tell the guys who your comps are. How do they not have producers to be like, hey, man, Chauncey, uh, you should probably come up with another one there, because that's insane. You just compared Rui Hachimura to Kawhi Leonard. Like, what's, maybe somebody else. Do you have a backup choice? <laughs> Because they had like They're video ready for it. The producers are like, yeah, Kawhi Leonard, good one. We'll, we'll get the video ready. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what is going on? I don't understand. That, that draft should be so much more fun. I'd love doing the draft the two years I did it. Like, there's so much comedy. The Suns take 
Cam Williams 11th. He's on boards where he's like 33rd. Nobody's questioning it. Like, why Why do we have a draft telecast? Nobody's questioning this. Nobody's going to be like, what the F are the Suns doing? They just took. No, they they did. They got, a, they got that. Uh, um, Cam jo- Is it Cam Johnson or Cam Williams? Oh, you said you misspoke. You said Cam Williams. I meant Cam it's, Johnson. It's definitely Cam Johnson. Who's Cam Williams? Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly I shouldn't I be on the draft telecast either. I don't know what Cam Cam well, Johnson's last name is. But you you weren't on TV. My here's my question though with that broadcast. It was mostly successful. Oh like, yeah. A lot of good it was great. things. They, a lot of the choreography was good. Why do we why not just have Reese and Jay sit there together? Why do you need and then if you need to toss yeah, it, why do you need you other have people? Woj and you have the draft people. You have those other people to toss it to. You have Bobby Marks to toss it to. Mike have, Schmitz was good. Uh, I thought he did a really good yeah, job. Yeah, Mike. Me, I agree with you. You have all those guys. You have people to toss it to for 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 stuff. You don't need three people sitting at the table. That's my that's my uh, analysis. Chauncey was not an asset. Uh, my last loser. So this is this has been a passion of mine for a long time, and now I'm gonna now I'm gonna say it again. Every once in a while, I have a great idea. I'm not, I'm known to have a great idea every every so often. And I think I've said this idea in the podcast, but if I haven't, I'm going to say it now. The picks go too fast. Having done the draft, you have the pick goes up. You see him hug the family. He walks up, does the awkward handshake pose with Adam Silver, goes to talk to Maria Taylor. And as that's all happening, Billis is doing his whole thing. There's just enough time to get the second person to say like something for 20 seconds. Then it goes to Maria Taylor. She does her whole interview. And all of a sudden, now we're moving to the next pick. It's it's not nearly enough time. It should be like 12 to 15 minutes when we're in the lottery because, I mean, so much shit's going on. We had multiple trades in the in this thing. We The, the NBA is now this 24-7, 365-day sport, and they rush through the draft. It's fucking nonsensical. So my idea is the lottery should be its own night. It should be on ABC on Thursday night. It should just be picks one through one through like 12 or one through 14, whatever, and make it like 12 to 15 minutes between each pick and really have fun and get Woj involved in each thing and really, really do it. And then the second night can just be, you know, put that on ESPN and it's picks 15 through 30 in the second round, maybe even have some supplemental picks for the third round. And now we have all this chance to digest what happened in the, in the first 14 but then it's like, all right, what's going to happen today? The first team in the clock is 15. It's like, what happens with the NFL draft? When it's like the second round's really fun, the NFL draft, because they give us a whole day to think about the second round. Why don't they do this, House? Give me, any, give me one reason. I, I, I'm, you're not going to get one reason out of me. I love it because it not only uh, does it, I feel rushed. I feel rushed trying to, you know, digest what the guys best available and oh what's the background here and what's the fit and everybody's the whole the tempo of the thing is out of uh out of whack but he what one of the reasons i really love this idea of separating the lottery portion from the rest is because it it feels like it would greatly increase the trade process yeah you'd have more time you had a full overnight for for the teams not in the lottery to to adjust to what just happened and be you know thoughtful about what what they wanted to do a full overnight. I think it could be just an incredible wild wild west kind of thing. Well, and, and then a lot more teams. Wait, hold on, hold that thought because you also have 
if if you have more time between picks in the lottery and it's like 15 minutes between picks or 12 minutes, now we have more times between picks for to have trades. I heard from Absolutely two different right. people who were involved with teams tonight that they almost had trades and they ran out of time because the other team had to had to do a pick. This happened twice. So Just 12 with minutes people is I enough. Because t- t- at 12 minutes with 14 picks, that's like a, a three-hour broadcast. Yeah. And that that's a good, lengthy, you know, proper way to sell your your industry. It's a huge sports night um, for for all, all of us and, and, and casual fans, too, because it is the moment of hope for casual fans. I, I can't tell you how many people, uh, Wizards fans, that I heard from, just, just, you know, folks that pay attention to the team locally here that are like, okay, what do you think about this guy? You know, they just, they pop up because it's the NBA draft and the NBA draft is, is a, is a moment on the sports calendar. Uh, you've, you've done it again, Bill Simmons. Well, send that right to, to Adam Silver. No, no, send no, that no. one direct on the hotline. We're go further. The two people in charge of this are Connor Shell and Burke Magnus. Connor's. Oh. Connor's been my friend since like 2006. We created 30 for these 30 are, together. These are our home. Yeah. yeah, these are your Bert homies. Magnus went to Holy Cross. Yeah. I'm calling them out by name. Somebody will forward to this. Hey, fellas, get your shit together. This should be a two-night <laughs> affair. Thursday night ABC, <laughs> Friday ESPN. Just do it. Listen to me. What are you doing? This is great. Why are we rushing through this the draft? I, I can't wait. Um, all right. This this has to happen now. Before we go, uh, let's we're gonna premiere the refeastables. Explain the concept house. Well, first of all, I'm jealous because all of the enormous success, deserved success of the brilliant conceit of taking movies and television shows and you know uh, series as they're happening and giving the takes and everything. And the brilliant idea of of running it through and highlights and all of that. So I had to invent. Uh, my my own version of this as it as it applies to the House of Cards, <laughs> and this is a thing that we naturally do, anyways. All of us hungry homies, all of us taste buds, we love comparing notes about terrific meals that we've had, and it's one of the things in particular that you love to do to me, which is go out and have some incredible meal with an incredible group of friends and start sending pictures yeah. and be like. Hey house, if you lived in LA, right? This is what you know. This is what you could be doing. So we're launching. This is going to be. This is the uh, the Virgin episode of Refeastables, yeah. a new segment on House of Carbs, where occasionally we will have on on the show uh, folks from our walk of life, friends in our in our giant network, who come on, who've had incredible meals. Maybe they've snapped a few pics of them. We and and they're just going to come on and, and walk us through. The, the the beautiful meal that they've had, the experience they've had, and tonight is is the the first episode, the first segment of this. You had a great dinner last night. I like in true House of Carbs fashion. Your intro was too long for it. <laughs> it <was> your signature. <laughs> but we all have our we, our special charm. We've done this on your podcast. We just weren't smart enough to call it the Refeastables, and then you came up with it, and it was brilliant. But when I went to Major Domo for the first time, I came on House of Carbs and talked about the entire meal with you, and you made groaning sounds the whole time. So that's what's going to happen here. It's true. So a restaurant called Angler, which is famous in the Bay Area, opened up in Los Angeles kind of on the down low the other night. And the head chef is Josh, Josh Skeens, who is from 
the restaurant Cezanne, which got three Michelin stars, which Chang said um, when they got the three stars was the best restaurant in America and probably the world. And this guy oh my. on the down low opens up um, another angler in LA in the Beverly Center. And it's open, but I'm not sure people know about it yet. So Chang's like, we have to go. He's cooking. It's going to be amazing. Chang's in town too. So we go. It's uh, me, Chang, Cho, Chen, and Yang. And, uh, and the first thing that comes out is a banana pancake. It's Wait, wait, we, we can't just blow by. This is one of your honorary Korean dinners. This you've been Asian, it's my honorary admitted. Asian. Yeah, I'm an honorary, honorary Korean I'm an honorary card. Asian card. Yeah. So this was yeah, I was Asian invited card. as the token white guy. I mean, you don't, you just run through with Chang, Cho, Chen. Well, and it's Yang, the crew. And just Those like, are the boys. And Simmons. Yeah. That's right. That's the crew. But we I mean, for context, they everybody knows you got your we have, we have to remind folks. They had, you have a, your they had a cap slot for a white guy, so they invited me. And well done. The first course was a banana pancake with this crazy caviar on it. No cream cheese in the caviar, just like big ass, delicious eggs, not too fishy. And we didn't know what it was. They just gave it to us. And it was like, this is a pancake with caviar. And then you bite into it. I, I think it was the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. And it was, it was yeah. crazy to start with the best thing I've ever tasted in my life to start the dinner that way. But it really was amazing. Uh, what color was the caviar? It was dark. It was dark and the- Was it black? No, it wasn't. It was like dark brown. And it wasn't okay, that fishy. Okay. And they yeah. ladled it on the top so that you, it was almost like uh, if you have an English muffin that has a ton of jelly on it and you don't want the jelly to tip yeah. off the muffin. So you have to eat each bite carefully so the little caviar eggs didn't oh. go. Oh, I was imagining because you said pancake that you wrapped no, it around. No, no, no. Around. It was just a flat, oh. flat, round pancake. Oh. Like that, like a wafer. Yeah, like that you'd make for your little son when he was like two years old, only it was like the greatest okay. version of that. So we started there. Oh. We had, um, I mean, he just brought out a bunch of stuff. We had antelope tartare. There, sure, why there not? There was a massive oysters platter that you would have loved. Ooh, ooh, I love oysters. There was a uh, big, big, big ass prawns. Oh. And here's the thing. It's one of those things where he has, it's like really fresh fish. It's not, there's no frozen anything. It's the fishermen are catching well, the fish and bringing it over to the restaurant. And then they're in the fish right. tanks. And, you know, the, the fish is like, you felt like it just had been murdered two minutes could before. You, could you pick them out? Like, give me this <laughs> I don't know if you could. You're about to die. The prawns were huge. You're about to die. They had like the, the, uh, the towels because it's like, they didn't want, you know, they knew it was messy. So they had all that stuff going on. Um, oh, we had wow. a giant oysters thing. We had this, um, trout that you peeled off the skin and you just kind of dug into. Um, could you eat the skin? You could. The the boy said I wasn't Asian enough to enjoy that one, which I thought I, <laughs> it hurt my feelings that they felt that way. Uh, we had um, they're probably being honest. We had a soft shell crab that I'll put a picture oh, on the in Instagram season. story. It was it was out of control. It was, it was like this. You realize that most crab is probably frozen, and even though if they're pretending it wasn't, usually it is. And this was like the crab mm -hmm. had just been murdered three minutes before the dinner. 
and it was nice and soft and gorgeous, and you would have loved that. Oh, uh, so good. They, I love soft shell crab. They had a soft chicken, which is the same way like Chang makes it. This this new way of cooking chicken where it's almost like boil baked. So it's not really yeah. cooked and it just gets super duper right. duper soft and wet. You know what yes. I'm talking about? I don't know what that style oh, is called. I, I, of course. I'm mangling all this, but that was awesome. Um, we had uh, We had venison. Cut, you know, like really old school filet mignon style, but with the venison, that was ridiculous. Oh. You, I Venison to me is a 10 out of 10 every time, if it's good. Well, these exotic meats, you have venison and antelope. Yeah. And then... um, And cat. Yeah. And then he made these baked potatoes that it seems like it takes two days to make. And Chang was berating him about how crazy it is to spend this much time making a baked potato, but... It's like he skins it, you put it back together, you bake it, then you take it out, then you bake it again, then you bake it. It's two days, and we're just like plowing through these baked potatoes that they had painstakingly made. It was it was really two days to make. It a seemed potato? like it was like a day and a half, yeah. And it was like so you're eating it, and there's like a baked potato bite, but then there's like a, you know, like when you get really good hash browns, and the hash browns are kind of crispy. So, but yes, that was kind of kind. in the baked potato, so. Each bite, you didn't know whether you're getting like the old school baked potato bite or like that kind of crispy hash brown bite. It was out of control. You would have, you'd have gone nuts. It was out of control. So that happened. And then they had a, a dessert thing with five different desserts. And it was all over the map, like things in coconuts that had ice creams. And it, oh. it, uh, it was it was outra- an outrageous dinner. And I probably left so out was four this things. A, uh, a- a soft opening of Angler or are they open open? It's a soft opening. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to happen in LA. We'll see how it goes. It's in the Beverly Center, and uh, which is a giant mall here. And um, it's an unorthodox location, but it's also in the middle of everything. And it's close to like five cities. So how was that? How was that for the first Refeastables? Did I answer all your questions? Yeah, it, it's terrific. I, I now have another thing to add to my must visit in LA list, it just keeps growing and growing because the food scene in LA is just too much to to handle these days. Caviar and a banana pancake. I don't know what else to tell you, House. I, I, I'm I'm here for it. I'm 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 ready. I'm ready, Chef. Josh. These new these chefs, as we head into the next decade, that take these two things that seemingly have nothing in common, and then they figure out how to make them a delicious marriage is my favorite trend of this decade, even though it's not a trend. I'm sure it's been going on forever, but um, it really seems like we've stepped up our game with how we do these these merit, these yeah, marriages, well, I, I food mean, marriages. I, shouts to David Chang. He's got a fried chicken and caviar thing at a, at a, more than one of the, the restaurants, more than one of the Yeah, those are booths. ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, House. I think we did it. I think we covered everything. Fairway Rolling, uh, you can hear that as we head toward the British Open. Fairway Rolling's been extremely entertaining. I guess we did. I meant to talk about Brooks, but we're out of time. The the I, I'm all in on Brooks completely, and and if he's ever going head to head with Tiger in a tournament, um, it's I'm going to be conflicted. Brooks has become my guy. Well, I mean, it, it it could be as soon as this coming British Open. Yeah, so you think that's in play potentially? Well, you have to get over 
the sort of obvious thing of Roy McIlroy, who grew up in Northern Ireland, and Graham McDowell, who grew up on this golf course, who's been playing pretty well yeah. also. So if you want, you know, if and, and the Europeans have been quite good in the Open Championship. Uh, you know, Molinari won it last year. Right. Um, but other than that, sure, why not? The best player in the world is Brooks Kepka. He's. I loved when he said he'd never had a hot drink. That was my my favorite moment of the month. <laughs> why would I have a hot drink? I live in Florida. I grew up in Florida. Why would I have hot drinks? So good, Brooks Kepka. You're the best. Uh, House. He's a, he's he's the. Thanks yeah. for staying up late. Congratulations on Rui Hachimura and uh, who's the other guy you got? Oh, and the Admiral. You got the Admiral. And and the and Jonathan Simmons, I think, unless we already waved him. Oh, and they said um. They said John Wall did like 20 minutes on the exercise bike today. So things are looking up. Things are looking well, up. You're... I, I, as soon as we get it, everything will be off and running as soon as we get a GM. <laughs> Do you need a GM for like a draft and free agency? How nah. does that work? Nah. Nope. No, not necessary. Don't need one this whole season. I like, Don't bother. I like when Leontes got mad about the Masai Ujiri rumors. It's like we've never contacted him. It's like maybe you should admit you con you tried to contact him. It's like not a not a yeah. dumb thing to contact the best GM in the league right now. Right. Well, and and how about this? It helps explain what the fuck has been going on for the past month, yeah. as opposed to the dead silence and the, like the lukewarm gestures towards Tommy Shepard, who de deserves better, and you know the Kabuki dance with Tim Connolly that ended swiftly and, and unsuccessfully, and then there's nothing in terms of progress as the draft approaches and free agency approaches. We're just going to take our time, okay? Take take your time. Don't try and explain it with a perfectly logical "we're swinging for the fences" thing. It, it's I, I don't know. I I'm, I have mixed feelings. This is as, as is evident. Do you think it's funny that the acting Wizards GM right now? Tommy Shepard was the same name as the character from Above the Rim who practiced in a in a playground by himself without a ball because his best friend Nutso had died by falling to his death on a dunk and he had trouble <laughs> trouble adjusting to uh, the death so he used to just play <laughs> basketball outside without a ball for hours on end. Do you think that people? Do you think that people mentioned that to Tom, to the real life Tommy Shepard? Is it the same Tommy Shepard? Could be the guy from Above the Rim. <laughs> And then he goes in the in so. the climactic game against Tupac's team. He go he's wearing long pants and and scores like ten long twos. He brought back the long I mean, two in the that. Thing. Remember that? This was the this is why I always had a problem with Obama. Why Obama tried to be this dude that was like a baller, and he kept showing up in mother effing sweatpants. I mean, yeah, that come on, Obama. Yeah, why do you think he did come that? On. You think he had like like skinny legs or something? I mean, I'm sure he has skinny legs, but I I feel like it was a some combination of self consciousness and like somebody t said something to him like the president can't be in shorts or some kind of weird protocol historical thing, is is my guess, but not well. That wasn't my best my favorite look for a when somebody's playing pickup basketball in sweatpants, nineteen out of twenty times it's a red flag, twenty out of twenty the twentieth time. The guy's so awesome. It's his way of being like, fuck all of you. I'm going to wear sweatpants and still kick everybody's ass. But the other 19 times are a red flag. <laughs> you don't agree with me? I mean, no, I, I agree with all of it, of course. That 20th time, that guy is always awesome. 
where he's just like, watch this. I just throw on some sweatpants. I, my shoes aren't even tied. I'm going to, I'm going to get 10 straight threes here. Uh, house. Doesn't give a shit. House, thanks. Uh, thanks for staying up for us. We really appreciate it. I'm, I'm here for you, All buddy. Right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Before we get to Michael McDonald, we just talked about uh, delicious food. How about whole lotta? It's the tasty new fruit, nut, and seed bar from Cliff Bar, a soft-baked snack bar with an awesome nutty texture and big, bold flavor combinations packed with whole ingredients you can taste in every bite. Great anytime for a snack bar when you're hungry in between meals or you need something delicious, convenient, and satisfying. Whole lotta gets you through that midday slump. They have all the goodness you want. Pumpkin seeds, almonds, cashews, dried cherries, or ginger. None of the stuff you don't want. That means no gluten, soy, dairy, added sugar. No, no. This is, you'll actually feel good after you eat these. The new Cliff Whole Lotta Bar is packed with a whole lot of flavor and organic goodness. Available in mouthwatering flavors like tart cherry almond, salted dark chocolate, roasted peanut chocolate, spiced almond ginger. It's a whole new kind of soft baked bar packed with 10 grams of plant-based protein I had a bunch of them in my office. Sean Fennessy, who's known to just steal these from people's offices and eat them. I saw him sizing, sizing them up. Then he grabbed one and he started eating it and he did the, oh, this is great. And now I don't know what's going on, but there's only like two left in my office. I think Sean's stealing them. They're really delicious though. They're a nice little like three o'clock midday snack. So go to cliffbar.com slash BS, C-L-I-F bar.com slash BS for 35% off a trial pack. Off Cliff Bar's new whole lot of bars. While we're here, don't forget about Big Little Live this Sunday, presented by Buick, Mina Kimes, Amanda Dobbins. If you go to at Ringer or you go to hashtag Big Little Live right after Big Little Lies ends, you can uh, you can watch the ladies break it down. Special guest Bill Simmons, that's me coming on to do a little parent talk. So that is coming on right after uh, the episode, which is a really good episode, by the way. Has a little uh, parent assembly saying, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, Reese Weatherspoon bringing the heat, bringing the heat this week on Big Little Eyes. All right, coming up, one of my favorite uh, musicians. It's been in my life a long time. Been dying to get him on the podcast. It finally happened. Michael McDonald, here he is. Well, what an honor. I demanded him. He's here. Michael McDonald. I don't know how this hasn't happened before. I've had a podcast for 12 years. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. For how many podcasts podcast. have you done? Not many. Yeah? Not many. You no. keep a weirdly low profile, but you're also, I, I feel like you're around. You're available, but you also don't do a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, these days, it's for me, it's pretty much touring with the band and then uh, the odd record every so often. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should probably be a little more industrious in that realm. But, uh, right. And I've kind of made up my mind this year I'm going to come down to L.A. and write more. I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't been writing that much. And uh, when I get home, I, I don't do much except uh, play some little gigs around town with right. friends of mine and uh, just for fun mostly. And and then I, I attempt to go surfing once in a while. Oh, nice. <laughs> let's, go, let's go backwards. Let's go to the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, you hook up with Steely Dan. Right. You're like, uh, how do they even find you? How does that happen? Well, uh, in, in the oddest of uh, random events, you know, as I think with most anyone's career, if you look yeah. back on your life, there's always those random events, but for which a million things would not have happened. You right. Know? Um, 
But uh, I was playing clubs in Los Angeles. I came out here for a record deal in 1970, uh, recorded an album that uh, hopefully will never surface. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, at RCA Records. Um, so, you know, I, I immediately got thrown into the studio which I did not deserve a job I did not deserve whatsoever. Was it because of your voice or because no, the way I, I you played, played piano, piano for him? Yeah. And, and I think he needed to feed me. He needed yeah. to kind of make, you know, he would just throw me on dates to pay me union scale so right. I, I could pay my rent while I was out here working for him as an artist. Um, and it's like a whole scene here at this point, right? Yeah. You know, it was, it was, a, it was, a, uh, it was, it was, you know, LA was epicenter for records being He's got made. the Eagles are going on and that yeah, whole sound. Yeah, sure. And a lot of people from the Midwest were coming out here yeah. to, to try to make it into the record business, myself included. And so getting to meet those guys was was uh, random, but but very fortunate, you know. And uh, I played some club gigs and some casual gigs with them. Um, and they were already in the session scene, in which I was never going to last very long in that myself. I just didn't play that well. But I, I, this guy used me in spite of that, you know, and, uh, uh, but having met Jeff, uh, he was getting ready to go on the road. He had just finished the, uh, Pretzel Logic album with Steely Dan, yeah. getting ready to go on the road with those guys. And, uh, they were looking for, um, uh, somebody to play some keyboards and sing some backgrounds. And so he, uh, had remembered playing a gig with me like a year before that. And oddly enough, found my phone number and, uh, called me up and said, come on down and audition, you know. So I, I threw my little Wurlitzer piano with all of about 25 keys that still worked and, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the back of my Pinto and drove right to rehearsal and audition and got the gig, you know. When Steely Dan's touring in the mid-70s, like how many people are we talking? Are you playing baseball stadiums? Are you playing 2,000-seat oh, oh, venues? You know, not not huge. You know, maybe... Uh, Maybe 3,000 to, you know, if we played a festival kind of thing, there might be 10,000 people out yeah. there. But we didn't do many of those. And we did pretty much just, so, you know, singular gigs. And at that time, it was anywhere from like maybe 3,000 to 5,000 people would show up. There, who was the competition at that point? Like, who was on your radar? Because uh, like Fleetwood Max out there at that point. Yeah, I think that the, the Steely Dan era that I was in, it was a little bit prior to the huge success. That yeah, I guess, yeah, that was 76. Although I'm sure they were touring, yeah. you know. Uh, we were kind of oblivious, you know, because uh, first the band had a very eclectic kind of audience yeah. or uh, enigmatic kind of audience, you know. Uh, coming from New York, that was more of a very artsy kind of audience. And whenever we would go back there to play, there were these kind of, uh, you know, obsessed devotees of the band you know that uh um but uh they were i remember they were as like grown up they were as like really respected but it's been interesting like this century in the streaming era i think their music has really done well with that stuff i think yeah. there's like a tale to it that some other bands from that era didn't have no i i mean i toured with them a few years ago and we we we, I would just sit there to listen to the band. I just heard them recently. But it always strikes me uh, funny how the music is so weird. Yeah. And, and yet they were the darlings of pop radio for a, at least a decade, you know, right. or more, you know. And still, you know, people really identify with this music that isn't anything like pop music, you know, you, you, that we're used to uh, as far as the rules of pop music, you know. Uh, uh, but there's yeah, always been those artists that do that. Burt Bacharach was like that, you know, to me, he was, uh, 
he wrote such great songs, but he broke all the rules, you know, that people would, you know, any A&R guy would, self-respecting A&R guy would go, people will never understand that. They, right, won't, right. they won't like it, you know. Uh, it's above their heads, you know. But, uh, you know, you find that when you, you strike that resonance with an audience, there's really nothing above the audience's head that, that they can't appreciate if it's got that something that, that harmonic convergence with, you know, uh, uh, people as a whole and, and and but i still like i say i've always found it amazing that these guys were such top 40 uh right. icons you know so then you end up the doobie brothers pull you in yeah I, that was uh, jeff baxter went on to play with just about everyone that was touring you know yeah after he left the dupe uh, the steely dan group and um he was out with elton john and the eagles and the doobie brothers and he kind of stuck with the Doobie Brothers, and then at a certain point in time, uh, they pulled me in just to kind of fill in temporarily for Tom Johnston, who uh, was taking a medical leave, a hiatus, you know. Uh, and, and these guys, you know, they had like that that kind of brutal uh, management. Uh, you know, they just kept them on the road. You know, they were always right. on the road, always booking gigs. And you know, they, they you know, they, they, it was at a point in time where. The, it, they just kind of ran themselves into the ground and they were, you know, uh, I think at one point, at one tour, they just mutinied and <laughs> all got flights home. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, they were back at it at this point and um, Tom's health was, was, you know, at the time he just needed to take a break. So I was filling in, uh, you know, as I mentioned, just, you know, uh, uh, at the point in time, temporarily. So you just needed like another voice and just a yeah, they just needed whatever. Some, a, sing, a keyboard player and, and uh, you know, so I, I, and then I wound up uh, staying on with them, you know, and then doing, taking it to the streets. It's such a fascinating, I don't think there's another story like it where you have this band that existed in a, in a specific form mm -hmm. and then you came in and that form changed into this other form that kind of kept what what the what made the first band famous but then you added this whole other element to it and then it was these two dueling elements that kind of everybody yeah. figured out how to work together for like five six years yeah it worked for a while you know and and i think you know um you know you, you're gonna you know whoever loves the doobie brothers usually has their preference you know uh but the band was more of a guitar rock band, you know, and then, uh, but, you know, the band was always very eclectic. You know, they always did uh, everything from slat key music to uh, kind of folky kind of stuff. To, right. You know, kind of uh, classic rock almost kind of stuff, uh, R&B stuff. You know, they, they, it, was, it was always a very eclectic band. So maybe for that reason, it worked. And and I remember when we toured, when I was with them for the years I was with them, thinking that I don't know of any other band that has this kind of songbook to draw from. I mean, our show was just, you know, all over the map, you know, but audiences seemed to like that. You know? Well, you know, the, you, the farewell concerts in, I think, 82. Yeah, yeah. And I was in some pharmacy and like four years later, you know, remember they sell the cassettes in the pharmacy for like sure, a dollar. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it was like Doobie Brothers farewell concert. And I was like, what the hell is this? So I got it. And I had it for like 10 years. And now it's, now you can hear all of them on streaming because all of them are on there. But what's really fascinating about it is the, the variety of songs in that two hour concert. It's like seven different bands kind of thrown together in this one thing, but it makes sense and it worked. 
You know, and I just don't know any other band that was yeah, like I don't, that. Yeah, I don't know if any band that could have gotten away with it. It was just, you but know. You're playing G- Jesus is just all right, the minute by minute. It's like, these songs have nothing in common. Right, right. No, I know. <laughs> but it kind of worked. It had like a specific vibe. There's really good video of that too. It really seemed like a fun, it was like a specific era, which we'll talk about the Yacht Rock stuff later. But like, it's outdoors. Everybody's just happy. There's like a vibe. People are wearing white. It just kind of had a feel to it. Yeah, no, you know, it was, uh, it was yeah, it was you know pathetic in its own way. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but but a lot of fun, you know. I mean, those those times, you know, you think about it and you think about uh, you know what was socially relevant then. You know, uh, you know, music. Uh, we were never one of the you know the, the more politically the lyric oriented bands, but uh, we had our. You know, we we you know we, we always you always tried to write about what was going on around you. You know, yeah. Uh, I guess taking it to the streets was kind of that uh, one of those songs for us, and then uh, you know a lot of other things. But um, the seventies, by comparison to today, was a very innocent time. You know, and yeah. music was still just kind of feel good. You know, people wanted to kind of go. You to had concerts. a band with the name Doobie in the title. Yeah, you yeah. Know? It was a time to party. You know, <laughs> if nothing else. You know, <laughs> the. Uh, so what's happening thing was I think the first time as a kid, I was like, oh, these guys. And that became this iconic two-part episode. Right, right. Which I'm sure you've heard about for the next 40 plus years. Ah, oh, hello there. Uh, the Doobie Brothers room, please. And I'll speak with any Doobie who do be in. <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> I'd be Roger Thomas. Well, we had a crazy publicist at the time who got us this gig, you know, to yeah. do this thing. And uh, we thought it was ridiculous, you know, like, and, and no self-respecting rock band would go on, you know, a primetime sitcom television show. It would be yeah. the kiss of death. It was but like, you actually performed. You played yeah, like a did. couple songs. Yeah. And uh, Kyle, do you know this episode? Yeah, Kyle's yeah. generation doesn't know. I'm sorry. They go yeah. on What's Happening and rerun is bootlegging the concert, but the thing falls out of his pants and it turns into a whole lesson <laughs> yeah, about how music piracy is a bad thing. It's, it's amazing. It, it was it's very, uh, yeah, it was, it was way ahead of its time really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. And, and we, you know, we, we were so against it and, but you know, we, we did a lot of crazy stuff. You know, we were on the dinosaur show, you know? Oh uh, yeah. But, but uh, and, and it was, you know, it turns out to, that actually it wasn't a bad thing and, and we had fun. We just, we just kind of were, I would you, imagine you it probably helped anything, you. you know. What's I that? would imagine it probably helped you. It probably raised your profile in some way. A bit, yeah, you know. Because so many people watch those sitcoms in the 70s, yeah, yeah. you know. I, well, uh, to this day, a lot of kids uh, grew up and, uh, uh, you know, that was the first time they ever saw us. You know? Yeah. And and I remember as a kid, you know, a lot of the acts that uh, – uh, I grew up loving. Uh, the first time I saw them was on Shindig. You know, remember it was a show yeah. called Shindig, and uh, but for that show, I don't know that I would have ever become aware of Marvin Gaye and the Supremes, and you know, uh, a lot of the acts that uh, are now pure Americana. When did you feel like your thing was taken off in in the whole Doobies framework? Because they had some monster hits there in the seventies, and you were responsible for a lot of them. But did you did you ever anticipate that was even going to happen? I used to fantasize that some of the people I knew in the music business and bands that I knew, and uh, you know, like one of the members might get sick, and 
I, they'd call me up and give me a job for even just a while, you know. Yeah. Which is kind of what happened, but I, I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But I mean, you know, uh, I remember, you know, because I was just playing clubs in Pasadena uh, uh, as far as Santa Barbara and little joints, you know, here and there, and then doing whatever sessions I could get, you know. Um, but I remember when the first Doobies album that I was involved with, Taking to the Streets, came out, Warner Brothers took out a, a, a billboard right there by Warner Studios. You know? Yeah. And I, I remember sitting there in my car, smoking a joint, looking at the billboard for like an hour, just going, <laughs> wow, you know, uh, you know, having no idea what would come next. But, you know, it, 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 it was just such a, a, a change from everything I had been exposed to up to that point, you know. Uh, kind of Robin Peter to Paul, but you know, and again, I like. like Are you some, single at this point? Yeah, I was single. Um, so and that was an advantage because sure some was, of the yeah. stuff you were singing about. Well, that and and I, you know, I, I, all I really cared about was making enough money to buy gas and groceries and pay some rent. You know, yeah. And, uh, I, I never really was that uh, motivated, you know, other than to play in bands. I, I I had great fun doing that, and if I could make a living at that, well, I was happy, you know. So I've had a running joke about like some of the songs you wrote. It's like what what kind of what kind of breakup did he have? Where it's like <laughs> what a fool believes <laughs> minute by minute. Um oh, I can let go now. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You had like some of the best breakup or this relationship <laughs> isn't working out music anyone's yeah. ever made. It's funny because I always kind of thought of I was writing a, about other people when I wrote those songs. Oh, so. no, okay, that um but <laughs> that ruins the mystique. Well, you know, I can let go now. On the other hand, I, I it was a girlfriend. I had we had parted ways, and uh, she actually said that to me. I, you know, I I ran into her later, and I said, "Hey, how, you know, how, how you doing? How you you been all right? You know, and because and uh, it wasn't easy to, you know, it never is, you know. And and uh, she said, "No, I'm I'm fine." She goes, "You know, I." I finally got in where I can let go now, you know. And I remember thinking, wow, that'd be a great title. that would have In my usual self-centered to the extreme, you know, uh, manner. Uh, but, uh, I mean, minute by minute is like, well, yeah. Minute by you know, minute, I'm going to be holding on. Yeah. You know, but my, my, I just had that conversation with my daughter driving down here. Uh, <laughs> I played her the Aretha Franklin's version of What a Fool Believes, you know. Oh, wow. And she goes, So, this, what's this song about? And is this about you? You know, and, and, and I said, No, no, I just, you know, train of thought that, you know, I got on and uh, thought, well, you know, I'll write a song about a one sided relationship where, where the one person really thinks it was that way for, both people, but right. it's kind of clueless to the fact that he was the only one who saw it that way. You know, uh, there's got to be an idea there somewhere. You know, and uh, but she, she, you know, like with my kids, they always like someone else's version of the song. <laughs> Is that so, true? Yeah. Well, there's probably they're probably too close to just you every day to conceive of you as like this voice singing these lyrics. Yeah, no, no. It's like I think my daughter <laughs> mentioned to me. She goes, you know, Dad, you're going out with Shaka Khan. She's really dynamic live and she's she said, what are you going to do when she starts mopping up the stage with your limp carcass you know? <laughs> i said i'll just you know do my i'll just keep my eyes closed you know <laughs> so the doobies goes till 82 but at some point in the early 80s you know you're going solo and i'm sure you're getting offers now i feel like the way music is now this decade it's almost like we don't have bands anymore everybody's solo coming out of the gate and people are thinking that way when they're 14 15 16 
Your era was more like, I got to get, I got to be in a band. And right, be, right, get, right. But now it's like totally different. Well, I, I always preferred being in a band because uh, I just always liked the camaraderie of that and the collective mindset of the music, you know. Um, I mean, even with the Doobies, you know, when, when I joined them, people say, well, you really changed the Doobies. But honestly, it was a collaborative effort. What happened when I joined them had a lot to do with the overall part of Jeff Baxter had a lot of uh, influence in the band as much as I did and all the other guys, you know, we, we kind of collectively came up with the next musical step we were going to take. It wasn't just me. Also like bands last five to seven years. And when you came in, it was probably when the band was going to peter out with whatever that sound was anyway. And you bring in this other thing, there's this weird, so this channel called Access has all these music documentaries. So yeah, they, yeah. they made some Doobies documentary a few years ago, but it's always like, some of them are like they're produced by the band or whatever. So it's not like the highest quality documentary, but right. I never realized that there was like this whole, the old sound versus the new sound thing, which I thought was like, who, like, who cares? Yeah. I don't think the band cared as much as some of the audience might, you know, I mean, cause yeah. there are people that, you know, when I went out with Steely Dan, uh, or no, when the Dukes of September, uh, was Boz Skaggs and, and Donald and myself. And we were, it was kind of, a. It's something we wanted to do, kind of self-indulgent, really. You yeah. Know, we put together, we got to play with this band that was better than probably any, all the bands, as good as all the bands we'd ever been in. And uh, we did all these songs. We did it. We got to pick the songs we wanted to do. And we largely picked from an old uh, songs that we did as kids, you know. Yeah. Growing up in bands, you know. But uh, all of a sudden you get to do this great old Fontella Bass song with a band that's killing it, you know. And, and it was for us a lot of fun, you know, but some of the audience, especially the Steely Dan devotees were not happy. They're like, what's going on? You know, and, and they let us know. You yeah. Know? And, uh, where are our heads? And so there was nights when, you know, you know, there'd be just people sitting in the third or fourth row. who just wouldn't let up. You know, it was like, you know, why don't you play some other stuff we know and love, you know, right, you know right. enough of this old stuff. You know? <laughs> but, you know, we had fun if no one else did, but I, I think a lot of people enjoyed it. You know, I do wonder if you guys created the farewell concert. I don't know if anyone had done that before because it was marketed a specific way. Like, we're done. Here are the last a couple times you can see us. And I don't know if that had happened before. We might be the only band that actually lived up to the title farewell concert. Because every, you know, every band that does it usually comes back the next year. Yeah, it's like a know? wink wink. Yeah, it's like a wink wink thing, you know. But um, we actually left <laughs> the <laughs> right. building. But... Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think we were the first, but, uh, you know, um, it was time, you know. I mean, uh, I think uh, the band as it was in the evolution of the band that I was part of, I think had run its, you know, yeah. uh, course. Um, well, you also must have been ready to do your own thing, too. Um, yeah, I was I was kind of reluctant to do that, to be honest really? with you. I, I, it scared me to death, you know, to be quite honest with you, especially the first live gigs I did. I, I can't remember being that frightened about anything in my life, you know. But, um, I, I, you know, then you get used to it, you know. Uh, like did you get else. stage fright initially or no? Well, I, I did have quite a bit of stage fright. Not so much stage fright as uh, just having to be the only guy that's supposed to do all the talking. Because even with the doobies, Pat did all that. You know? Yeah. And he was the front man for the band. And uh, and that was fine with the rest of us, you know. Did... um. Were you dating at the time? What was going oh, on? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I dated. Uh, you you know. must have had some cachet. Uh, you know, I I, uh, 
I wasn't together the enough beard, to, to make any use of that. Big head of hair. <laughs> you know, I was still kind of goofy and uh, socially inept, you know. But, um, and we, again, you know, we toured so much. We were on yeah. the road so much. Mostly when I came home, I spent whatever two weeks I had at home in my bathrobe watching Cal <laughs> uh, Worthington smoking lots of pot, you know. Uh, it wasn't a, exactly a... a a life that I, anyone should admire, but you know, we were just on the road so much. Yeah, and, and I remember actually uh, one tour. We were out for six months straight and without going home, and we it was our last couple of gigs. And I actually started to suffer anxiety, panic attacks at the thought of going home and being on my own, not being with these twenty-five other people. Wow! And somebody telling us where to go next. You know, the the idea that I had no idea how to go home and just wake up and, you know, make a pot of coffee or, you know. Uh, yeah, you become like a nomad at some you point. You do. Kind of, you kind of become a, a creature of, you know, I don't know what day it is and it doesn't really matter if I did, you know. Uh, um, someone's going to wake me up and tell me where to go and uh, we're going to sound check as usual and then we're going to do the gig, you know. So and, then you had you had a whole Motown part where you got into that. Yeah. You just, it just kept going and going and going. At some point, you became an institution. That was, for me, one of the most fun eras I, uh, of my solo career that I, I ever experienced. Uh, uh, I, you know, my first thought was, why me? You know, why, why are they even asking me? You know, there's so many great young black artists uh, who really uh, could carry this legacy, you know, yeah. so much better. And the only reason I actually said yes was because I, I had sung the stuff so much growing up in clubs back in the day and when, when a top 40 band, the measure of a good top 40 band was how much can you sound like the artist? You know? Yeah. So I kind of grew up being a, kind of, a, you know, having my own take on mimicking the singers that I was, whose records I was doing in the club. You know, I would learn the little licks they did and I would learn... You know, without actually imitating them, I would try to just get a feel for their nuance, you know. And so I thought, well, you know, at least I'm coming to this armed with that. You know, I've sung these songs and uh, I wouldn't mind singing them on record for sure, you know. But uh, you're you're conscious of the, I'm a white guy and this is Motown. Yeah, you know, it seemed odd to me. But uh, then I thought, well, you know, and then there was all this talk about, well, we'll get like some hip hop producer to do it. I went, you know. I, I, that's not the project I, I want to do, especially out of respect for these artists and yeah. these songs, you know. Uh, I don't want to chop them up into loops and do all that crazy shit. I, I, I would like to uh, get somebody who could bring that kind of a ethereal kind of, the, kind of the way George Martin brought his production value to the Beatles doing Smokey Robinson, yeah. you know what I mean? Or Simon Climey, he produced uh, the Pilgrim album by... Uh, uh, Eric Clapton, which to me was almost in some ways, uh, maybe a subconsciously, almost an homage to Curtis Mayfield. It was like uh, the stuff that Eric was writing at the time just had that great feeling of that, that kind of soul music from Chicago that, that I, in the 60s, you know, uh, uh, that was, you know, felt really good, but it was kind of lilting. And it, it was really early hip hop is what it was. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, so I thought, well, you know, if we get a really great British producer and Simon, I love that record that they did, the Pilgrim album. Uh, and so they asked him and he was up for it. And uh, I think that was the moment in time that the Motown project became a success for me, you know, was to be able to go in and let Simon kind of help put these tracks together. And, you know. 
So at what point do you, you start raising a family? At what point you have to start balancing? That was- uh, How much the, am I going to be on tour versus how much do I want to be home, all that stuff? Yeah, like all things, it, it kind of took on its own destiny, you know? I yeah. mean, I, I, at the time, I was thinking and uh, encouraged by people at the label, like, you know, uh, look, hey, you know, uh, Warners was always so good to me, that, that, that label. They were just, you know, they, they believed in me, you know, probably more than they should have. But uh, it was like, hey, this next record, that you know, your second solo album, it's it's got to be, it's the most important record you're going to do. You know, like, you know, you want to get out there, you want to be touring, you know. And I, and so I, my, my design was to get in there, do a record, get some singles, you know, get back into the touring circuit and start to build that, that part of my solo career, you know, which did not happen, you know. And, uh, but I, it, looking back, it was great fortune because my son was born around then and it gave me time to kind of stay at home with him when he was a baby, you know, yeah. that I wouldn't have had. And, and, you know, I was just kind of newly sober then, you know, I just had kind of, kind of went through my, uh, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol stage was. Uh, oh, I didn't even know you had a stage. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I was leaving that behind me and, uh, you know, for me to go back on the road and all of a sudden have a successful album probably would have been the kiss of death, you know? Yeah, yeah I probably yeah. would have started to think, oh, I got this, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, so I, I I, was able to kind of stay close to home and it, uh, and, and keep writing and kind of connect back to L.A. And, and the people I knew here and start to write with people and uh, kind of put my solo band together at a more, less frenzied pace, you know? Okay. That time that, you know, you when you're came to prominence basically 75, 76, 77, you know, there, there was so much partying, all that stuff. And people didn't realize certain drugs were bad for them and stuff. Do you look back at that and think, oh my God, like it, there was just no awareness of basically everything. Everybody's just having a good time. And then at some point everybody looks at each other and goes, oh wait, some of this stuff's bad for us. All right. Well, we should then, settle down a little the bit. the nature of, of anything like that, you know, like, uh, you know, addiction sneaks up on all of us and we're all are usually people who are going, Hey, you know, that's not me, you know. Yeah. I that's got him. this. I got this, you know. I, I can handle this, you know. Until it's so far gone and, and your resolute stubbornness and uh incredible denial that's expounding, you know, uh as as it, the situation gets worse, you know, yeah. you, you don't become like less or more apparent it doesn't become more apparent to you that you got a problem. Right. Usually you become more resolute in your, and your infinite capacity to lie to yourself becomes, you know, like uh, delusional at that yeah. point, you know? So the, the chances of anybody getting sober, as far as I'm concerned, are like the same chances that the universe would be created in less than a second from <laughs> absolute nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I look back, the longer I'm sober, I, the more I look back with incredible gratitude that, some random chain of events led me to a moment where I went, you know, the jig is up here. I, you know, I better get on the bus or I may not be here when the bus comes back. Yeah. You know, it's and, such a fascinating time because you see it in sports and you see it in comedy and you see it in music where it's like 77 to 85. Yeah. And just a lot of people got wiped out for either they died or they almost died or it really affected the work they were doing for years and years. In sports, we lost a lot of people, especially in basketball, a lot of I'm careers sure. really got affected. You know? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, look at all the musicians who, but for opioids or, you know, all the things that are plaguing us, you know, would yeah. still be here, you know. Uh, 
you know, I don't think anybody, I don't, I don't know that any of us who really are addicts make that decision ourselves when yeah. it happens. We, we are kind of, uh, I, I think there, there is a higher power at play that, go, that comes in in that moment of clarity, goes, all right, this is what it is. We're having a conversation here. You're either listening or you're not. You know? Yeah. And, and uh, it's not like I could think my way uh, to, you know, uh, deciding to give all that up. You know, I, I never could, you know. Right. And I never will, you know. Uh, not even now, and I've, you know, uh, I've been sober a while, but, uh, you know, uh, my propensity for taking the smallest resentment and turning it into something that I could drink over is still there, you know. Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, my my uh, ability to, when there's a choice to be made, uh, somebody said it the other day, it's like, you know, you hear the Christians say, what would Jesus do, you know? Um and for me, it's like, what would sobriety do? You know, because I, I'm going to make this choice or that choice. One's going to lead me to a drink, and the other one's going to lead me to a little closer uh, reality that uh, some some higher power that other than myself is will is better than whatever I come up with. Yeah, know? and and I, you know, I, I that's just how I live today. I just kind of don't. I try not to project too much into the future, and I, I try to just. Uh, keep it all within the 24 hours that I'm living in, you know? Yeah. What's, were you amused initially with this whole Yacht Rock thing when it took off last decade? I, what was I, I your was, reaction? You know, it was funny to me. You know, it seems my, like you have a good sense of humor. So well, you my kids, you know, it. they'll never let me, you know, anything like Family <laughs> Look, Guy. kids must have you know, loved when, it. They, when TiVo came along, I couldn't escape anything. You know? <laughs> they would TiVo all the Family Guys and all the, you know, uh, Yacht Rock on, on their computers. And, uh, you know, whether I liked it or not, I was going to see it, you know? And, and I always thought it was funny. And I, what I thought was amazing is how it kind of turned into this whole uh, uh, serious radio music genre. It's it's like a legitimate genre. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Funny, There's yeah. arguments about what's yacht rock and what what's isn't. What's yacht or what's and not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, uh, I'm working on, me and Jimmy Kimmel, are good. I hosted Yacht Rock last year for an hour at the channel. And me and Kimmel are going to count down our top 25 favorite songs. And everybody's got a different criteria for what is Yacht Rock and what isn't. I always feel like it's got to be from like 77 to 85. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine it could it could be played on a boat. I don't know why that's important to me, but. It's a good uh, place as any, really. Yeah, it's just like it's <laughs> the sun setting in Santa Barbara or San Diego or something. Everybody's on a boat. Would this song make sense? I got to feel like you can come in the background on it. Sure. In yeah. at least 50% of the songs I'm picking that at least you could come in flying in for. Right. One harmony, but I do think there's rules. I get really mad when they use like, you know, Chicago is on the Yacht Rock. I'm like, that's not Yacht Rock. That's that yeah. was a whole other, that was pre-Yacht Rock. Yeah, they were around too early to, yeah. you know, to uh, you know. But I, I look at, you know, like, like whether Toto is Yacht Rock, there's, I've been in actual arguments about this. And that's funny. It's, yeah. it always seems like you, Kenny Loggins, Christopher Cross, Couple others, but there's Steve, like the staples Steve, they have yeah, to be involved. Yeah, yeah. Steve Lukather would probably kick anyone's ass who said that. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm sure. I feel like it's a compliment at this point, though. Well, I mean, when you, you get know, your own channel, something's going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And I always tell my son, you know, who's a musician, you know, I, look, you know, he always loves to, you know, uh, give me a hard time about all this stuff. And you know, we, we laugh about it a lot. And he, you know, go, uh, I always tell him, you know, look, you know, when the relevance of your music, becomes less important 
your pathetic comic value may have some, you know, some use, you know. So, so you think it's more kind of, I actually think people really genuinely like the music. I, do, I think that's I, like 95% of it. I, I think you're right now. You know, I think yeah. at first it was just kind of a spoof, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's become to some people, they might not even think about what the, the term even means. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a genre, you know. Because I remember initially SCTV did a sketch, which I'm sure you've seen, mm -hmm. where you're late to a recording session doing the background and you're like running in. Right, right. And that was the first time I'd ever been like, oh, wow, this is <laughs> this is something people have noticed that is just like in my life. like these. But then the Yacht Rock thing happened, which was pretty early. I think it was before YouTube. Was probably like oh four oh five, but then that became a thing, and then yeah. it just kind of snowballed. And then last year, I went to a Hollywood Bowl concert. It was you, Christopher Cross, and Kenny Loggins, and there was like eighteen thousand people there. People dressed like boat captains, and That's great. everyone yeah. was rocking. It was it was really <laughs> hilarious. People no, I were know. Really into it. Well, you know, and, and no one's more amazed than than we are. I mean, I am. It's for sure. I mean, I uh, especially like when. You know, I went to see Steely Dan in New York at the Beacon and went out and sat in on a song. And I, I, I can't help but look across the stage and I'm thinking, did we ever think when we were in our 20s that we'd still be taking the stage together at this point in time in our yeah. 60s, you know, our late 60s, you know? Uh, and the answer would be no, you know? <laughs> I would have never dreamed that. I remember the joke in the late 80s with the Rolling Stones was like, oh, man. Yeah, and look Imagine at Imagine these yeah. guys will be, they might be here five years from now, and it seemed amazing. You know? Yeah, no, it's it's true. Yeah. It does seem like nostalgia has become such a huge part of the concert industry. Like, you look at the acts of, like, top 50 grossing things, and mm -hmm. it's a lot of bands that, you know, have been together for 30, 40, 45 years. Yeah, and I think a lot of those bands have, have earned that, like the Stones, for sure. You know, when you go to one of their shows, even now, you know, what a what a book of songs, you know. Yeah. Their encore would be a great concert for most bands, you know what I mean? Uh, U2's like that, too. U2's yeah. been together 40 years now, yeah, you know. Amazing. But yeah. I do think part of it probably has to do with the fact that people get older and they still love those bands, but they also have money to spend. You know, yeah, I was old in the eighties. So Kyle yeah. has no money. Like None. he None. he can't afford the yacht rack <laughs> at Hollywood Bowl. No, unless I'm a guest of no. You're not going on any yacht cruises. Who uh whose voice right now would you most want to do a duet with? Is there is there somebody out there that you'd be like, I just want to do one song with them? Oh, uh, that would a, match you. Probably a lot of people. There's a, there's one female singer from Spain that I, I really like. Her name's Buica, and uh, she's kind of a iconic artist in the sense that she's been around, uh, but she's kind of uh, uh, the uh, the voice of the uh, kind of Afro flamenco music, which yeah. is which is you know a very real genre in Spain, you know. Uh, and uh, she's just got this amazing voice in her timbre and, and uh, you know, uh, ability to sing. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I've always kind of fantasized in the back of my head doing a, a song with her, like a, maybe a, a, an older uh, kind of a tango. All right, so we've put that out. Now, now yeah, somebody, somebody in her life will tell her. Yeah, yeah. How did, like, like, you do something with James Ingram? Yeah. How well, does that happen? Is, like, the studio arrange that? Or are you at, a like, a bar with James Ingram saying, hey, we should do a song. Uh, actually, Quincy Jones reached out to me about that, you know, as... as uh, so he sees something and he's like, these two voices, I got to put them together. Yeah, yeah. And see what happens. Right. And uh, 
uh, most of the time it was a producer who would call me, you know, and, um, cause the whole duet thing, I think has kind of gone off the rails, but when some of the the classic ones in the eighties were really good and really good matches of people. And then they usually happen kind of through the back door too. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, I'm a real believer in the fact that when you plan a duet, it's probably not going to be that great now, but if somebody calls you at the last minute and it, like the other person's already sang their vocal, it's like that far along, you know, uh, sometimes those things just take on a life of their own. And, and, uh, um, well, it's like whenever I call you friend, which I think is a classic Yacht Rock song. Yeah. I, that's always on any playlist. But um, Stevie Nicks wasn't supposed to be on the song. And I think mm -hmm. I pulled in last second. Yeah, Melissa Manchester. Was, yeah. Uh, the, she and wrote the song. Melissa and Manchester. she's just kind of, hey, can you be on the song? And then that becomes a song that's has a 40-year and counting life. It, it does. You know, uh, that's been my experience is the ones, the things that happen almost by accident. J like James and I, you know, Yamo was the, the last song we wrote, uh, we wrote three other songs that got turned down for that project, you know, and we kept getting sent back to the drawing board, and which was great fun. We became great friends during that time, yeah. you know. But uh, it almost got to be laughable. We were like, oh, you know. What's your biggest song that you felt like you can't believe this wasn't a hit? Wasn't a hit? Or? Yeah, a song that you had that you're like, this is going to be, people are going to love this, and then it didn't pan out. Oh, I don't know. Um, or you just never know with this stuff. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I, I don't, you know, I think sometimes I, I I thought there were songs that should be singles or maybe released as singles, but uh, like Here to Love You, I thought was a, a kind of a cool track uh, in the way the Doobies had done it and everything. But it wasn't meant to be, you know, it was released, I think, as a single, but it just didn't, didn't. All right, what about the flip of that? What was the song that you had that you instantly knew, all right, this is going to do well? Um, this I is think happening. We, we felt that way about What a Fool Believes just collectively as a band, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. There's just something about it, you know? And I think uh, when uh, when we cut I Keep Forgetting, we kind of felt like that was, you know. Uh, that was another one, another breakup song. I didn't yeah. even mention that one from before. Right. I forgot. That's another member of the of the of the breakup all stars. Right. I right. keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. Well, yeah, they're they're all. You know, I always had a thing. <laughs> Who was that one about? Songs. I, you know, no one in particular. Just uh, in fact, it was taken from a, a you know an earlier song of that title by Mike Lieber and Jerry Stuller. You know, so it was. Uh, when did you meet your wife? I met my wife when she was fifteen and I was sixteen, uh, or nineteen, I think. Uh, there's laws against that now, but uh, <laughs> we met right here in this neighborhood, yeah. not far from here. And uh, she was out here. She was signed to the Beach Boys label, Brothers. Yeah, record. she's a singer. Yeah, she's a singer. And I was hired as her piano player. Uh, uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, Rick Girardi, he was producing her also and kind of hired me to kind of practice with her and play piano and get her ready for her. And when did you get when did you get married? Like eighty. Well, we right? didn't get married till eighty three. Yeah. And uh, we, our first kid was born in eighty six. So when you you're doing, I keep forgetting. She's not looking at you like, are we sure? Are we good? Everything's all right with us? Oh yeah, no, no. She she knows me too well. She knows <laughs> we're good, I'm, right? I'm a sappy old. Hey, song what's right? up with that? Keep forgetting. <laughs> no. You're not trying to tell me anything, are you? I don't think she ever listens to my songs <laughs> that, that that closely. <laughs> um, so this this summer you're touring with Shaka Khan. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are yeah. you 
she goes first, then you go, you go first, she goes, you mix I, it up. How does I that happen? I honestly don't know, you know, if, you know, um, but I know that Shaka always has a great band and, and always does a phenomenal show. She just kills it. And so it's exciting for us to, to go out with her, you know. Yeah. And, uh, like I say, you know, the, uh, uh, I hope we, you know, she doesn't raise the bar too high. And, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know it's, it's for me, I've always kind of felt that the best other bands you can go out with it always has the the best effect, you know. To me, I'd rather uh, if I follow a band, especially, uh, um, and I don't know what configuration we're going to do this tour in, but uh, I'd rather follow a good band than a band that's kind of put the audience to sleep because then, right. you know, it's, that makes uh, sense. They want to take their frustration out on you when you come up there, you know. But if they're if they're you know if they really got them going, then it's it's almost easier to go up and play in front of an audience like that. You know? There's no more the Doobie Brothers farewell concerts, but they've done like nine I, nine of them you know, over the I years. Never we can't out, have another uh, one. playing with it because I, I still enjoy playing with them. I, mean, yeah. I do from time to time. I haven't recently, but I never counted out because uh, I, I'm still pretty in, much in touch with all the guys. You know, uh, not everybody as much as Pat. Pat and I talk a lot. You know, and we see each other because we, we're kind of neighbors in one of the places we live, and uh, um, and our kids stay in touch so you know we we see each other we talk to each other quite a bit and uh he's always mentioning hey you know if, if something comes up would you want to still come on i always say yeah because i i i enjoy it you know those guys they're great he guys. seemed like a legitimately fun guy he's a great guy patrick yeah, yeah, he just had a look with those certain people in the bands we see him on stage just have a look a look in their eye you're like oh, no that yeah guy's he's trouble fun guy and and uh, one of those guys that it's it's fun to get him to laugh because he has you know he <laughs> he likes to laugh, you know, and, uh, but, uh, great guy. And all the guys are Tommy, uh, included Jeff Baxter, um, John, uh, McPhee. That concert that I had on tape, everybody introduces the next person in the band. Oh, really? Yeah. And then it goes to you and you have to introduce Patrick Simmons and you're like, on lead guitar, lead vocals, and probably on drugs, Patrick Simmons. <laughs> and he's just like, <laughs> he just seems like the greatest guy. Uh, he is, you know, and all the guys are. And uh, A great Simmons, Kyle. Yeah, another one. Yeah, uh -huh. add him to the list. We'll put him on the Simmons All-Stars. Well, good luck this summer. Man, thank I'm you. I'm glad we did Thanks this. For having yeah, me. this was fun. It. Thanks. I'm, I keep it going, but it's getting hot in the office. We got these panels. This is a. I don't. Uh, I don't want to like one of us to pass these out. These are hallowed halls. This, <laughs> this place, you know. I remember when this was Screen Gems years ago, and might still be. Oh wow! In some areas, but uh, you know, uh, Carol King and uh, wrote here, and uh, you know, all really? these all these great songwriters. That, I never. Know. I always hear stories about Sunset. Like people, this was allegedly Frank Capra's office, but I have no yes, idea it if was, it's true. Yeah. And, and back in the movie days, it was, yeah. You know, uh, you so know, who knows? Who knows? Walk these. Feels halls, like there's right? some magic. Definitely. Yeah. Ghosts, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks to The Zone. Don't forget to sign up at DAZN.com. Thanks to The Ringer and The Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks to hashtag Big Little Live Sunday night. Thanks to Cliff Bar's whole lot as the tasty new fruit, nut, and seed bar from Cliff Bar. This soft-baked snack bar has all the goodness you want, like pumpkin seeds, almonds, cashews, dried cherries, or ginger. None of the stuff you don't want. That means no gluten, soy, dairy, or added sugar. Plus, packed with 10 grams of plant-based protein. Visit cliffbar.com slash BS for $35 off a trial pack. C-L-I-F bar.com slash BS. We will be back next week with more 
podcasts. Maybe I'll have some more information about the Celtics by then. Until then. <laughs>